A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Steve Pavlina author of Personal Development for Smart People. He also maintains the site, stevepavlina.com, a site where tens of thousands of people come every day for inspiration and motivation. Steve is one of the OGs of blogging. He's been very consistent and very prolific. He's blogged more than 2 million words of content, enough to fill 25 to 30 books. And years ago, he released the copyright on his blog. So if you go online and you search how many books he's written, his name is on more than 200 books because people take his work, merge it with their own, publish it, give him credit. A truly remarkable thinker. In this interview, we talk about the arrest he had for Grand Theft Auto way back in 1991, how that was a catalyst for him to turn his entire life around. We talk about the massive career change he made shortly thereafter, going from a game developer and software programmer, who was an award-winning video game designer, by the way, to being a full-time speaker and author. He made his first blog post way back in October of 04. In this interview, we talk about how he gets his ideas for his blog posts and how he cultivates a torrent of inspiration. We talk about his 30-day experiments, which go back to the very beginning. He's engaged in so many different personal experiments, including polyphasic sleep, vegetarianism, veganism, even 30 consecutive days at Disneyland. You know, some people do Ironmans. Other people go in for different kinds of mental challenges. We also talk about the 40-day water fast he did. I thought people died if they did that kind of thing. We talk about the Conscious Growth Club he runs. We explore synchronicity. Why pretty much all of his writing and videos are published the very same day he writes or shoots them. We talk about an experience he had many years ago when he was on the verge of bankruptcy, right about to be evicted from his apartment and the realization he had that led him to work fewer hours and to get better results. We also explore why he tries to turn his own goals into social ones. And we also touch on the topic of open relationships and open marriages, something that Steve has practiced for uh, many years. As I said, he's a very interesting thinker, a very free thinker. And the final piece of trivia I'll leave you with here is that back in 2013, Lindsay Lohan got a tattoo based on the truth, love, and power triangle that Steve uh, talks about in his book. And then she blogged it. So... You know, when you write these words and send them out into the world, you never know who's going to receive them or get them tattooed on their body. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Steve Pavlina, and I feel confident that you'll take away something that you can use to improve the quality of your life and the contribution you make to others. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. What's life about? Hmm. 
what's life about? I, you know, the way I see that question is life is asking me or asking us that question. And so it's, it's an individual answer. So I can ask, what is my life about or was life about? But my answer is going to be very personal, which means it's, it comes from me. Um, so I can say what my life is about, which is about, um, it, it's really about trying to figure out what the heck this place is that we inhabit. <laughs> uh, that's been a big part of my journey for a long time. It's just uh, intense curiosity. And growing up, um, you know, I was raised Catholic and had went to 12 years of Catholic school growing up where I had all the answers given to me. This is how life works. Mm-hmm. And later in life, I began to question that kind of thing and began to start coming up with uh, my own answers, first by sort of wandering around and seeking answers from other people, but then by actually applying some thought to it and asking myself, what is this reality? What is the nature of this place? Because it became increasingly mysterious the more I stared at it, (laughs) the more I tried to figure it out. And uh, the way I think it actually works these days is I I really have been leaning more and more into the idea that this is some kind of simulation, that it's it's not necessarily a pure objective reality. It's that there there are different perspectives in which we can look at reality. And as Dr. Wayne Dyer used to say, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And I've just seen that show up so many times in my life. Change the perspective I use for looking at problems, for looking at challenges, for looking at life in general, looking at relationships, and things start shifting in response, often in very strange ways that are hard to predict. Yeah. This sounds a lot to me like even in physics, this term, the observer effect, mm-hmm. right? We, we have this sense of in in a spiritual way or a personal growth way, I think we know intellectually, yeah, you change, you know, the meaning you're giving to things, you're willing to change your perspective. And of course, the situation can change the way you feel about it change. But then in a very literal scientific sense, we see that in, in things. And I'm admittedly no physicist, but this idea of the observer effect, this very act of observing something, in fact, seems to change it. Exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's bizarre just how many experiments are possible. Um, and I, I recently did a, a 60 day deep dive experience with people um, just like exploring that for 60 days in a row of these different perspective shifts on how to, how to look at reality differently. And it was, uh, it was just amazing the kinds of experiences people had from this, uh, you know, it's just like profound shifts, like letting go of addictions very quickly or, um, you know, coming into a new level of abundance in their life just because they started changing the way they looked at reality and questioning. And I think that's one of the things we don't consider enough is that there are multiple ways to frame problems, challenges, relationships, looking at reality. And we often get stuck in these mono-focused frames and they hold us back. And we don't realize just how much those, those frames we choose limit us. Yeah. No, I've certainly experienced that. And we often hear people say there's two sides to every story. And then I remember the first time I heard someone say, no, there's actually three sides, (laughs) right? Yours, mine, and the truth, whatever the truth is, but acknowledging that it's not just this or that, black or white, right or wrong, but there are, in fact, a variety of perspectives. You can also think of it as there's two stories to every side. So whatever your side is, you probably have your stories backing it up. It's like the, the history is where you learn these lenses, where you learn these frames and perspectives. You know, the stories we have, the, the reference experiences, the memories, those are what really lead us to choose certain frames. And when we start actually being a little more flexible in how we interpret our own past, our own stories, that can help to change 
how flexible we can be with our frames, which can then in turn change the results we're able to access. And that's, that's really the, the, the most profound effect of this, I think, is that when we shift our frames, we shift the results we're able to create. And sometimes we can access results we can never even get close to before, and they show up almost easily. No, and, and this, see, I love this conversation, and I find, I find it very interesting. I tend to find it useful, and yet, at the same time, I, I'm listening in a way where I hear it's kind of conceptual. It's kind of abstract, right? And until it becomes personal, until it becomes livable, it can, it's easy for these conversations, I think, to remain as just a conversation. But I know s- s- individual conversations or individual people, of course, have the power to transform our lives. And I'm thinking about something I read that you wrote on your blog about hearing Wayne Dyer speak um, and how that set you on a different path for your life. Will you tell me a little bit about what that was like? What were the circumstances of your life at the time? And how did having this encounter with, with Dr. Wayne Dyer uh, make an impact on you? Yeah, I remember it very vividly. Um, it was a, a conference that I went to on a whim. It, I, I live in Las Vegas. I moved here in 2004. And sometime that year, uh, Hay House, the book publishing company, was doing one of their major events called the I Can't Do It seminar. And they were having it in Las Vegas. And I thought, oh, cool. I, I like personal growth. And so I thought I'll invest in that and go to the event. And at the time, I'd been running a computer games business for about 10 years. But I was thinking about switching to something else. I was thinking about going more in the direction of writing, something personal growth related, basically taking something that had been a side hobby and making it my main career. Why were you thinking of changing? Well, Computer games had been a big part of my life since I was young, and I, I, it was the dream of mine in my 20s to work in the computer gaming profession, you know, to, to make computer games. And I did that. I created award, an award-winning game, and I felt like it was running its course, and I was looking at, what do I really want to invest in long-term here? And I thought, do I want to go another 10 years down this path? And I could see that I was already starting to get some decent success. My business was sustainable. It had been sustainable for five years. My sales were starting to grow. And that's when I started getting a little scared, not really scared, but doubtful. Like, do I really want to sink my teeth into this? Because I felt like the further I went down that path of investing in my game development skills and the business, the more it could become a trap that would define me, define who I was becoming. I, I suspect, by the way, there's a lot of people listening, going, looking at their own experience of life going, that sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect. That's partly why I help a lot of people in that situation uh, because I've gone through that kind of tricky career transition. And I know what it's like when you have that sunk cost, you've invested in it, you've built your skills. I started learning computer programming when I was 10 years old. Wow. And, and here I am in, um, you know, I'm like 33 years old at the time and I'm thinking about a career change. And that's, that's a big deal when you've been going down that path for so long, you've built so many skills. You know, you're know, already good at it. Yeah, you're already good at it. You have some recognition, um, I was, you know, giving talks at tech conferences and I had a, a popular forum for independent game developers. There was a lot of good things in my life. I could have just kept flowing down that path. It was like a, a stream by that point. You know, it was not a lot of struggle or effort. Um, you know, it was making enough money to you know, not really worry, have to worry about it too much. Uh-huh. So it was, you know, it was, it was nice. <laughs> but the problem was it wasn't meaningful enough. Mm. That's, that's where it was falling short. And I think mm-hmm. that probably echoes something on your path as well. <laughs> it's yeah. like that call to meaning and purpose. Absolutely. And, and when I, you know, looping back to when I saw uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer speak, he was the keynote speaker at this conference. 
um, I was sitting in the pretty much in the middle of this large auditorium with about 2,500 people watching him speak and seeing him on stage. And he was talking about the power of intention. And it wasn't so much the words he was sharing, but just sitting in the middle of that audience, surrounded by all these people working on their personal growth. I just thought, this is amazing. And I was just like crying, you know, tears were running down my face. Wow. It was just because of the intense energy of being in that room with, with those people hearing him speak. And I had this really profound impression, like I'm supposed to be doing this kind of work. I'm supposed to be that guy on the stage doing this kind of stuff. And I, uh, and it was, it was tough. I went home and kind of reflected deeply on that. And then I honestly sat on it for about six months because <laughs> I was in a bit of a funk. I didn't know what to do. It's like, how do you take that first step? Where do yeah. you go? What, you, yeah. know, you have that that feeling like, okay, this is what I need to be doing, but how do you turn that into action? That's what took me a while to figure out. How do you actually get there when you're not even close to that reality? Yeah. You have a totally different career path. You're surrounded by different friends and, you know, uh, different, everything was grounding me to being in the computer gaming field. Yeah. It's kind of that, that, that inertia or that gravity keeping you as you were, right? Yep. And, and I realized I had to go through a process almost like a divorce with my old career where I had to start letting it go. Mm. That was tough. Um, I, so I did simple things at first. I took all the game programming books off my bookshelf and put them in a you know closet or garage or something like that. Just get them out of the way. So I wasn't always having that priming effect of seeing them and reminding me that I was a game developer. And instead I put some personal development books on the shelf. Mm. So it was just like making some small modifications to my environment to tell me that I'm going down a different path now. And that, that helped. It, it worked. And then it was just like, okay, what's next? What's next? What do I have to let go of? It was that, that's what started happening during those six months is it was letting go, uh, letting go of the, um, the game developer forums that I ran, handing it off to three friends. And they actually, they actually continue to run it to this, to this day, Wow, which is really cool. So it was, it was a long process of letting things go. And you know, some of it started even a few years earlier because I was sort of winding up to this path. But, but yeah, seeing Dr. Dyer speak and, and having that flip, uh, that, was, that was really profound. Yeah. <laughs> That's what eventually got me, got me going into, uh, into blogging, which I finally started. Uh, it was October 1st, 2004. I finally wrote my first blog post. Yeah, and you've written, as we were talking about before we started this recording, you've written a lot of words on your blog, like 2 million words, enough to fill 25 books or more, in fact, part of what I want to ask you about as well is the fact that you've released the copyright on your material. So now people are welcome to, to take it and, and use it and share it with others. Of course, I, you want them to acknowledge and attribute you know, to you. But the, first of all, the volume is amazing. The prolificness, the discipline, if you call it that, um, just the consistency over 15 years of writing. And then what I look at is generosity you know, of not only sharing it in the first place, but then putting it in the public domain and sharing with others. Not many people, I think, do that as I've studied, you know, thought leaders in this industry and looked at all these models from, you know, big, big companies like Franklin Covey, you know, who basically have an army of attorneys. I think that might not be totally accurate. I haven't seen it from the inside, but to protect their IP or, per, you know, pursue people who infringe upon it and all this. And, and you've taken a totally different route. So I know I've just kind of opened a couple doors there. But I want to start, let me actually, before I even ask about any of that, ask you about the book you did publish with Hay House, 
Personal Development for Smart People. And this was a book that you published. You published this um, about 10 years ago? Yeah, it came out in October 2008. Or let's see, September 2018, I think is actually when it came out. Okay, so just about... Not, 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 not 2018, 2008. 2008, that's right. So about almost, almost exactly 10 years ago from the time we're recording this, this is... Um, this is, where are we in time, <laughs> space and time? We're in May of 2019 as, as we record this. And this book, uh, Personal Development for Smart People, The Conscious Pursuit of Personal Growth. So obviously you've been prolific as a blogger. You've published this one book through a traditional publisher. Will you tell me, who do you write for? Whether it's the book or the blog, who do you write for? And what do you want your writing to do for that reader? Um, I often... This might surprise people, but I often write for specific individuals I know. Um, I, I meet a lot of people in my audience in person. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, last year, I, I got married for the second time, and I married a customer. <laughs> well, I, I married uh, uh, my wife, Rochelle. She and I met at my first workshop that I did in 2009. And uh, we'd been in a long-distance relationship for like eight years, and we finally got married. And so uh, I have this long history of just being very um, – connected with the customers, you know, the, with the people who are readers of my blog. Uh, I meet up with them in person quite often. I've met hundreds of them, you know, in different countries even. Yeah. And, and on that topic, by the way, just, just to jump in here on that, I had hoped we would do this in person, that I would make the drive from Salt Lake to Vegas. And I love on your website, you talk about the fact that you're willing to meet with people and have a conversation. You just meet in a Starbucks <laughs> near your home. And I'm super curious, like, does that always turn out well? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it really does. Uh, it's, it, it's interesting each time. Sometimes people are a little shy and it takes a little while for them to warm up. Um, so, sometimes people have a tendency to, you know, put me on a pedestal because they've been reading my blog for a while or, um, you know, it's, they, they, they have this like celebrity idea or something in their mind, but uh, I'm not really like that in person. I'm just like, a, you know, just very friendly, approachable. And so when, when they get calmed down and then we have a really good conversation. So first few minutes are awkward, but after that, it's usually pretty good. Cause you've even had people fly in like internationally to, to meet with you, right? We'll meet for a few hours and then, and then even flying back that same day, somebody's done before. How often do you have these? I mean, cause you're a busy guy. You got a life. It varies. It varies tremendously. There's certain times of year where um, more people come to come to Vegas and so you get these surge around holidays, like maybe 4th of July, I'll get a lot of people wanting to do it. So I might do like, you know, three or four in one week during that time. Mm. Most of the time though, it's like, you know, one or two a month. It's not really that big a deal. What do people want to talk about mostly? Money, sex, and kids. <laughs> what is it? Um, anything and everything. They, we often just tell stories. It's just a normal conversation. We talk wow. about personal growth. We talk about... Uh, we talk about the nature of reality. I remember having a really interesting conversation with somebody who was a military intelligence officer stationed in Afghanistan. Hmm. And we had a really f- interesting conversation about what his job was like and what kind of work he did. Of course, he couldn't tell me certain things for security reasons, but I found it so fascinating. I eventually interviewed him for my blog because I just wow. thought it was really cool. Uh, and, and so I've kind of learned to connect with a broad range of people because there's a lot of people who are into personal growth that you might just label it differently. Some will call it education, some will call it training or skill building, but pretty much everybody's into it. Otherwise, we never would have you know, learned to talk and walk and <laughs> yeah. like that. We have, yeah. to, we have to grow since we were born. So we're, we're used to that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that was a kind of a, a divergence off this question of who you write for and what you want your writing to do. And then you were sharing, you write for individuals very often. Yeah, quite a lot of the time. Um, I, I think of a certain person or I think of a person and I generalize them as an archety- archetype in a way. I think of somebody who's like, okay, I'm going to write something to help like a 20-year-old college student who's struggling with productivity and procrastination. You know, think about something like that. I'm going to help somebody who's facing a decision right now. Uh, they're, they're leaning towards breaking up with a long-term relationship, and it's really hard for them. Um, I'm going to write towards helping somebody who's considering a career change. They're sort of stuck down this long-term path. They're doing work that's very mental. They maybe gotten good at it, but it's not feeling hard aligned. And they want to mm-hmm. do something more hard aligned, and they're having trouble trusting those feelings. And so I, I think about, quite often I think about places where people are getting stuck. And I can help maybe nudge them a little bit past that stuckness, give them a little bit of a perspective shift. Uh, so, so often it starts with thinking of a certain individual I know who's dealing with a certain problem. Like when, uh, when I get an email from somebody, when somebody posts something in a discussion forum or shares something on social media, it often triggers a line of thinking. Like how do I help this person? Uh, what, what could I share that might have some meaning or be impactful for them? And then that's what starts getting my mind churning and the gears you know, moving and um, it, it starts just coming through as a flow of ideas. And then it just gets expressed through writing or speaking or interviews or you know what, it can be expressed in all kinds of ways, workshops, products, who knows. Now, how do you choose the people? I mean, how do you choose the people or the topics that that you that you're writing about. I mean, I heard you say it'll be things under the discussion forum, but why that one over something else in any given moment? It doesn't feel like I choose them. It feels like they're being assigned to me. Hmm. Say more about that. It feels like I don't really choose the topics I write about, not consciously. Mm-hmm. I don't have like a, a a list of topic ideas to write about. I used to try that in the beginning, like the first year or two of blogging. And then uh-huh. I go up to like 200 ideas that I was thinking about mentally, like, oh, I should write an article on this and this and this and this. I just got disgusted with the whole list because every time I looked at it, it just felt so uninspired and unmotivating to write about those topics. Like they were mentally chosen topics, like stuff that would be good for search engine rankings or this will fill a need or, you know, just like stuff that's top of mind. Yeah. I usually just deleted that whole list and said, I'm just going to be present and write about what comes up in the moment. And it feels like some part of reality sends me signals. Uh, it, it like gives me ideas. They flow through my mind. When I, when I want to write a new article, even if I don't have an idea, all I do is just sit quietly for a f- couple of minutes and I ask the universe, I say, give me an idea and some, to write about. So I'd like to write an article. And oftentimes I'll add a little bit of flavor to it. You know, like, what do I want to put in it? I want to write an article that's playful today. I, or I want to write an article about productivity. Or I want to write an article that's very mental or spiritual or social or fun. Or, you know, or I want to write an article that's going to be a challenge for me to write. Whatever kind of experience I want to have, I, I just invite that. And then I quiet my mind for a little while. And whatever's coming up in the first 30, 60 seconds, I know it's garbage. So I just let it go. <laughs> just, just stuck in my mind. I'm not really tuning into anything. It's just the stuff that's floating around. And it's, it's the stuff that's mental, but it doesn't feel hard aligned. I don't mm. feel that um, congruence between the mind and the emotions. And when, when I get past that and just let it go and kind of let my mind blank and often just like kick back in my chair and close my eyes and lean back and, um, 
Then after a couple minutes or so, I realize I'm sort of drifting off and daydreaming. And whatever I'm daydreaming about, it's the flow of ideas that becomes the article. That I'm, that I'm, it feels like I'm supposed to write it. It really feels like the universe or the you know, combined intelligence of humanity is picking me and is giving me these assignments. Yeah. Now I can say yes to them or I can say no to them. Uh, I might say, no, I don't really want to write, write about that topic. And I can kind of just reject an idea and let another one come through. Or I can choose not to write. Or I can pick the first one or pick anyone, any idea that comes through and say, okay, that's the one. Let's go with this. And I noticed that when I use that approach, the articles will get done maybe like three times faster than if I try, than if I try to do it like, say, through brainstorming or coming up with ideas for very mental reasons. Like yeah. I should write about this topic. That would be a logical one to pick. My yeah. blog needs this kind of topic. But if I just let the intuitive side come through, it's, uh, it's a beautiful experience of writing. It feels more like a meditation. I just, mm. I just love the process of doing this. Yeah. And I found out that some people uh, you know, create other creative works this way. Like musicians create music, music this way. Artists can create art this way. Uh, I, know, I know somebody who writes books this way, like whole books. <laughs> yeah. you know, tuning in and inspired ideas. And it, it's just, uh, that's basically how I built my blog traffic was uh, going with the flow of these inspired ideas. And I noticed that when I came up with ideas that were really mental and I could still write articles that way, it, it'd be more work. It would feel like it was tougher to get the point across and they wouldn't land as well with people. But when I write these intuitive flowing ones, not always knowing what was going to happen, just uh -huh. being in that flow, they would so often uh, generate feedback where somebody told me it was a synchronicity for them. And that's yeah. what really got me curious about like things like the nature of reality too. Yeah. It's like, how is this happening? Because people would say, you know, you wrote a sentence in your article that was like word for word, exactly this 15 word sentence I wrote in my journal last night. No way. They would say, are you spying on me? Like, how did you know? Wow. <laughs> um, and other people were saying like, I was just thinking about this topic and then you write this article like the very same day. What the heck? Like we're right. somehow psychically connected. Yeah. It got me really wondering because I would not see that kind of feedback when I picked the topics for mental reasons. But when I just picked them intuitively or felt like they were being assigned to me, it was a synchronicity for somebody out there. It, it, people would feel like they were sending me an idea to write about and I would be the conduit through which it got written. That reminds me a little bit of what um, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote about in her book, Big Magic, talking about how there, do, there does seem to be not only a zeitgeist, but there's kind of this, this current of thought that circulates and it touches us from time to time. And whether we're aware and receptive and willing to act on it or not can be the difference between, you know, the, the act of creation and contribution or, you know, just remaining in some kind of a sleepwalking trance or something. But that, that's interesting to hear, to hear the way you approach that. It sounds a little bit, I know this isn't exactly what you're saying maybe, but it sounds a little bit like channeling, right? Like there's something that's coming, is working with you, it's working through you, and then, it, and then it, other people are, are connected with it as well. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it, for me, it's not that the words get channeled. It's that there's a certain energy combined with an idea. It feels like a wave of motivation to write about a certain topic. Mm -hmm. But I still have to combine it with stories and structure, and I still have to leverage writing skills to do that. Yeah. Otherwise, the idea will just sit there, and it won't get expressed because I won't know how to express it. 
Yeah. Blogging was a great way to do this because it's not a lot of investment to write a single article. So I could try and experiment with this hundreds of times and hundreds of different ways over a period of many years. And every time it was like a learning experience. Every time I, I you know, saw a different angle on it and how it works. And so I got to really map out, scope out how this type of creative uh, ability works. Yeah. Well, then what I'm so interested to know about this as well, because I'm hearing you again, what I'm taking away from what you're saying is that you're receptive to inspiration and then you, you act on it. But I think that many people who think, oh, well, writing is an writing is something I'll do when the inspiration strikes. Like those people wait a long time. (laughs) Many of those people wait a long time or they, or they, the initial enthusiasm of the inspiration wears off. It dissipates. They don't have the stick to itiveness or whatever to get the, the writing done. So what I want to know is, do you have any kind of a regular schedule for yourself or an intention where you say something like, well, I'll write two blog posts a week or, you know, each one will be 1500 words or 500 words or anything, because I think what we're talking about, we've already touched on the fact you've been blogging for about 15 years. So you, obviously you have the longevity and, and the stick to there, but you also have tens of thousands of, of readers, like people who are visiting your site every day, right? More than 10,000 at least. And that's a lot of people. I mean, if you think about if that many people came over to your house for a party, <laughs> that's a lot of chips and dip, you know, but to get that, mu- that many minds, that many, you know, people coming to, to read your work and, and they're obviously coming back. I imagine those aren't all unique. But, but anyway, this is to say, as you're using this approach, it sounds to me like a very inspired approach. How do you put that structure around it as a writer that allows you to publish with regularity, that allows you to complete the work you start and not just be motivated when a whim strikes and then let it peter out and dissipate into nothingness, if, if that makes sense? Um, yeah, my answer is probably atypical, but I don't write on any kind of schedule. You know, I can write an article on a Sunday night. I can write it on a Tuesday morning. (laughs) Uh, I can write it when I'm traveling. I've written articles on airplanes before. Uh, It can be in any situation, any, you know, any time I'm prepared to be able to write an article, Hmm. but I don't know when the inspiration is going to come. When I feel like writing and I want to write and I think, okay, I want to write something now. I feel motivated to write. (laughs) Then I'll, um, I don't wait for inspiration. I'll ask for it. I'll invite it. I'll just mm. say to the universe, give me an idea. And it feels like that it just like, okay, transmitting, you know, it takes me a couple minutes to tune in, but then uh-huh. I start getting the transmission and it's like, okay, here it is. And I'm like, okay. So it gives me the idea and the idea arrives as, you know, that packet of, it, it's partly information, but it's actually mostly energy. It's like this surge of desire that I feel to contribute something in a certain way. And what really is key about that is it has to be a very pure intention. I don't get those kind of signals when I, think I have to write from a place of neediness, like I need to write. And that's why I don't do the scheduling thing. Because when I've tried that in the past, then I feel like I need to write. I'm writing because it's on my schedule, because I have to, I have to put this content out. And I, I just didn't feel aligned with being that kind of writer. I want to write when it's a cool idea, when it feels like there's something awesome that I need to express. Yeah. When I feel like I've got something you know, that, that I feel jazzed about and I want to express that, that's when I'll write. And sometimes it might be an hour. Sometimes it might be eight hours of just straight writing and editing. And what I generally do is I just write it continuously from beginning to end. 
then I maybe sometimes I'll take a break, like have a meal or whatever, then do an editing pass and publish it. Almost everything I write is published the same day it's written. Wow. Same, same thing with videos too. If I record a video, even if it's a video for um, launching a product or a service, generally it's published the same day I recorded it. So it's just like, you know, I, I feel like there's this need to put the energy out there soon, early. Evidently, you and I don't share the same congenital defect of perfectionism. <laughs> it sounds like you've pretty well allowed yourself to just receive this inspiration and let it flow through you. Yeah, it's more like defectism or something. <laughs> well, it, it's just that, you know, I feel like I learn more by just trying different things and exploring yeah. in different ways and not worrying about things needing to be perfect. Uh, I, I feel more impatient to get the ideas out there than I do worry about polishing them. Well, I, I'm reminded of something Tony Robbins says from time to time about perfection is the lowest standard possible because it doesn't exist, right? It's like, oh, that's an interesting reframe. That's so, true. I, I can always write the perfect blog post tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, okay. So let me ask you about this. Um, although you don't necessarily publish according to a set schedule, um, one of the things I've been interested to read a bit about your work with these 30 day challenges that you take on. So I want to start by asking you if you'll just share a little bit about why is a 30 day challenge something that's so useful for people who are looking to, to grow or to transform some area of their lives? Uh, because it lets you get an insider's perspective on what a new habit or behavior or lifestyle or way of experiencing life is actually like. And the insider's perspective is very different from the outside looking in. And the, the first time I did this kind of experiment that I recall <laughs> was uh, in 1993. And I decided to go vegetarian for 30 days. And part of the reason that I decided to do that is I had a friend in college who was vegetarian. And I thought, that's interesting. You know, he's, uh, he was from India, his, fa his family was from India, and he'd just grown up that way. I thought that's interesting that he's going to be vegetarian for so much of his life, and I'm never going to experience that because I was, you know, not raised that way. I'd never gone vegetarian before. And I thought, he's going to always have this piece to his life that he'll experience that I never will. I thought, isn't that, isn't that kind of a shame that I'll never even know what it's like to be vegetarian, not even for a few weeks? And so that's what gave me the idea. Well, why don't I actually try that? Why don't I actually be vegetarian for one month out of my life? Because then I'll always have that as like a piece of my identity to know what it's like. And then I could just go back to my old previous diet. And I, and I thought, oh, yeah, I could do that. Why not? You know, so in a, a semester but, or a, a, in the summer between semesters when I was at college, I was like, okay, I'll take the month of July or whatever, you know, be vegetarian. And I thought, this is kind of neat. <laughs> and what was interesting is by the time I got to day 30, well, I still had only vegetarian food in the house because that's what I happened to buy. And, and so I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to go shopping right now. Just, you know, I still have some food, so I'll just eat what I have. So, you know, another week passes or whatever, I'm still eating vegetarian. Pretty soon, I go shopping again. And the next, the next thing is, you know, like, like, I just don't feel like buying meat this time. So I'll just buy vegetarian again. Yeah, whatever, you know, just keep going with it. Pretty soon six months passes and I'm still eating that way. And that was in 1993 and I'm still going. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then in 1997, I did the same thing with, with being vegan. And now I've been vegan for over 22 years. 
And it, and it was like, it was an accident, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, I didn't actually set out to be a vegetarian. It, uh, it was like the habit just stuck. And what happened was after being vegetarian for 30 days, I liked it so much I didn't want to go back. What did you like about it? Um, I felt a little bit clearer mentally. I used to go running every morning. I do this 25-minute run and uh, go about three miles or so and run out, you know, run back. It was just something I do before class each day. And I noticed after going vegetarian that I could breathe a little easier. The runs were a little easier. I could go a little faster and not feel as winded. And I thought, that's interesting. My body seems to respond well to this. And I started doing like even better in school. And so I thought, okay, this is, this is nice. And after a while, I just lost interest in, um, in eating uh, meat. It just, it stopped looking like food anymore. It's like, it just became a habit that I ate a certain way. And so it was kind of like looking at it, like it was, it was nothing I missed. It was like looking at a bowl of sawdust. It was not something I saw as, as something I'd want to eat anymore. Yeah. So I just sort of fell out of that habit and it just felt like a very normal, natural thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I kept going with it and it was because, um, you know, this loops back like why about the power of 30 day trials, but the power of 30 day trials is you get to experience the result yeah. and the results are very motivating. I would have not have chosen to be a vegetarian, but after doing it for 30 days and I saw the results and I experienced the results, I thought I want to keep these results. And, and then you can honestly weigh the, the, the effort versus the results. And is it worth it to continue? And I calculated, yeah, this is easily worth it. I'm going to keep going with this. I saw something similar for myself when I made a decision a couple years ago to become vegetarian. Um, and it's just one of those things for me that like from the outside, uh, or, you know, having said before I, I took that step, um, I thought, you know, I don't know if it's right for me. I don't know if I'll really like it. But um, once I did have that inside view, as you're saying, I was like, absolutely. For me, it felt right. And now I, I have a hard time thinking I'd ever go back and have a steak or, <laughs> you know, eating. So anyway, um, enough about me. I want to go back to you on this 30-day trial. The one, the one that you've done, there's two I want to ask you about in particular. Disneyland. <laughs> 30 days of Disneyland. And the other was your 40 day water fast, which you went beyond 30 on that one and did 40. But first of all, tell me why on earth did you choose a 30 days of visiting Disneyland? Like help make sure I understand this correctly. Like, first of all, what was it? Why did you do it? And what did you learn or what did you gain or experience from it? Yeah, that was, that was one of the trickiest ones to decide to do. It's one I'd been thinking about doing for years uh, with, with my girlfriend at the time. And we eventually did it in the fall of 2016. And it was just, I'd always been looking for, you know, how do you keep stretching yourself when you're doing these 30-day challenges? What's the next idea? What's interesting to explore? And the, the thing is that idea just kept coming up in my mind. I thought, and, and what appealed to me about it is I didn't know what it would do to me. Because <laughs> I was like, what would that do to a person if you go to Disneyland for, for 30 days in a row? Now I was very familiar with Disneyland because I grew up about an hour from there and my family would take trips there all the time. So even before I'd considered this experiment, I'd probably been there around 30 times or so. So, it, you know, it was, I spent a good bit of time and I was very familiar with the place. And I thought, hmm, you know, I don't know what this would do to a person. So, um, 
So I was talking to my girlfriend, who's now my wife at the time, we were you know, discussing the idea and she's very playful and she likes these kinds of experiences. And I was like, should we do this or not? And you know, we estimated it would, it would cost about $5,000 because you get, uh, that was for annual passes. We booked an Airbnb that was not far from the park. So we, we actually booked it for a full month and the guy was like, nobody's ever booked my place for a month. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we were like, okay, we got to, if we, you know, we have this place to stay and you know, annual passes makes it, it was, you know, it turns out to be something like 20, $25 a day that you're going to end up paying for, for admission to the park. So it's not that bad per person. Um, so I was like, this is very doable. And there's, you know, food and so on. But uh, with annual passes, we also got free parking. So it's like, okay, that's cool. So we, you know, I was like, yeah, it's easily, you know, $5,000. I can afford that. That's not a problem. And it seems like, you know, it'd be a really interesting experience. And what really helped me make the choice is um, uh, my, my friend Zan Perion likes to ask the question, um, do I want the memory? Hmm. That's what really helped me make the choice. And I thought, what would that be like to have permanently the memory of having spent 30 days in a row going to Disneyland? And I was like, that sounds awesome. So, some people <laughs> might reframe that question to, do I want the scar? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking like, is it going to do any permanent damage to me? But it was my curiosity that partly led me to it. But uh, my wife and I had picked it, well, my girlfriend at the time, <laughs> Rochelle and I had picked an Airbnb and we were like hovering over the, the, book it net, the book it button for like an hour trying to make that decision. Like, do we do this or not? Do we do this or not? And eventually I'm just like, all right, click it. Because... I have this idea, you know, that we should embrace new experiences. And I've even written an article years ago called Embrace the New. And I thought the reason to do it is that I don't know what it's going to do to me. And I feel like intuitively this keeps coming up in my mind. And I know if I don't do it, I'm always going to wonder what it would be like. So why don't I just get it out of my system and, and see? And it was actually a beautiful experience. Did you get your hearing back, by the way? <laughs> It can be loud there, but I'll tell you, you know, even to this day, we still can't get the Disney songs out of our head. Like oh, we'll just sure. break out singing, you know, a song from Little Mermaid or something because it's music, a small world. The music never stops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're there. It's like everywhere in the park. It's going, music is constantly going, even in the shops area, even the bathrooms, you know, it's, you, you can never get away from the music. So we have all these Disney songs embedded in our heads for life. We can just never get away from <laughs> What did what rules did you have for yourself? Did you have anything like, well, even one minute in the park counted as going every day, or did you have to be there by open and stay till close, or were there was there anything that you imposed as kind of the rules of the game? It was to spend a full day there every day. It was like wow. no no cheating. There's no one minute crap. None of that. No, no. So yeah, we would maybe the shortest day was like eight hours or something like that. But typically we were there for 10, 12, 14 hours a day. And, and on our last day, we said, we're going to go big. The last day uh, that we were there was the day before Thanksgiving and their hours were uh, 8 a.m. to midnight. So we were, we were there. I think we stayed from like 8.30 till 12.30 cause wow. there's this, the shops are still open a little bit after the park officially closes. So we spent a full 16 hour day there just to finish strong. Amazing. Um, and, and it was, it was a, just a beautiful experience, but it, it, it's a, it's a 30 day trial in some other ways too. It's 30 days of spending every day outdoors. It's 30 days of being around lots and lots of people who are having fun. And we, we had a lot of fun and, and you know, this might surprise you. We, we've even we've gone back. <laughs> you have <laughs> gone back since then. We've gone yeah. back many times since then. We even got an annual pass, I think uh, last year. Wow. We've gone back a number of times last year. And yeah. it's, it's 30 days of spending time with someone you love. 
Exactly. 30 days, just focused on your relationship partner, just having fun together and going with the flow of whatever inspires you in the moment. You could be as impulsive as you want. There's no agenda, nothing you have to do. Just be free and just enjoy your life and have fun. Wow. And what, what I didn't expect though, there was a hidden benefit to that experience. And I'm really glad I did it because while I was there the whole time, I'm living inside Walt Disney's imagination, essentially, you know, like his universe that he created. Yeah. I thought, I kept thinking, like he started with mouse drawings and look at this thing he built. Yeah. And I, I, there were many times where I just didn't feel aligned with Disney's values. I was like, okay, you know, all this stuff, all these products they sell, it's so much stuff, so much plastic toys and things like that. And I thought, okay, I'm not feeling super aligned with that. The fact they're preventing you with health food at every corner. <laughs> not, not, not really, right? Yeah, we were, we were able to get some vegan food there. It wasn't too bad. Um, well, we would often leave the park and get food. We, we often um, went to Whole Foods uh, in Garden Grove for breakfast first, and then we'd pop over to Disneyland. <laughs> so we could at least get, get started with like, you know, a acai bowl or something like that. And yeah, something healthy. Something healthier, yeah. So, uh, but it was this, this idea that kept sinking into me, this idea of thinking big. And like, what would it be like to go big with my own values? Because mm. I, I got so immersed in seeing, you know, like somebody took their values and went big with them. Yeah. I, I, I since read a, uh, a biography of, of Walt Disney and got to know his life story much better. And I just found it fascinating, the progression he went through, you know, starting with like drawing Mickey Mouse and all this stuff he built, but in alignment with his values. And I thought, what would it be like to do that with my values? Like if I started thinking bigger. And what conclusion did you come to? What'd you come up with? Well, it took me a few months, but eventually I decided what I really wanted to do is create a bigger growth oriented community, like bring people who want to live more consciously and want to be more growth oriented, bring them all together in like one community and just build it and build it and build it and build it. And the goal is we all come together and we encourage the heck out of each other. We all help each other grow. We work together as a team. We actually get to know each other. We care about each other. We cooperate. We try to push ourselves to express our creativity more. Uh, to, uh, we, we try to empower each other. And I thought that would be awesome. This, this sounding, it's sounding like Burning Man. <laughs> could be, but I, I wanted to do this. I wanted to have, create something like really lasting, like permanent, something to endure. Yeah. Like I, I'd been in um, Toastmasters International for many years which started you know, decades and decades ago. And I thought, that's great that they created this organization. And when I was in it, it had 10,000 clubs all around the world, about 200,000 members. And I thought, this is awesome. And it's all about basically people helping each other improve their communication skills and yeah. leadership skills as well. And I thought, what if we had something like that for personal growth? So I started leaning more in that direction and eventually created this group called Conscious Growth Club, which we went in beta testing mode in early 2017 and then we just uh, did our, our full launch of it a few weeks ago. And it's up to a little over 150 members right now, but we're going to keep, keep growing it. And it's, it feels like now I finally found that thing I want to invest in for like 20 years or more. Where like It's my version of Disneyland. It's my yeah. version of that long-term vision that I can just keep building and, and nurturing year after year after year and keep, and keep building it up and growing. And it was that experience at Disneyland that actually helped foster that kind of mindset and that idea. And I wouldn't have, I don't think I'd be doing this. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be doing it, at least not yet, if I hadn't done those 30 days of Disneyland. Wow. No, so that, that's, that's, that's trusting your intuition. And like if the idea keeps coming up, even if it seems foolish, 
maybe there's a reason it keeps coming to you. Yeah. Maybe it's something to say yes yeah. to. Well, and, and this Conscious Growth Club, I think it's something that people who are listening to this will be interested in. Um, how does it work? It's, a, it's an online community. It's a paid community. And the reason I did it as a paid community is because I wanted people to feel bought into it, to really make a commitment and also give the group abundant resources. Um, so we're only launching once a year. And it's just, so the launch for this year is already over. So the next time people can join is April, 2020. And that's because I don't want to make it the kind of group where people are always joining and leaving throughout the year. Um, it's a one year, one year membership minimum. Uh, and basically it involves uh, a private forum where we can connect every day or we can discuss with each other. It's not on Facebook. So there's no ads, no distractions. We don't post affiliate links in there. There's no promotions inside the group from anybody. It's all just encouraging each other, sharing, um, sharing our challenges. We keep progress logs inside the group. It's a very action-oriented group. Uh, we have uh, courses. I've got a course on abundance, another course on uh, connecting with and exploring the nature of reality called Submersion. And those are part of it. Uh, and it's, and uh, we also do uh, coaching calls. Um, I do those personally three times a month. Uh, just on, on Zoom, we do live video coaching. And those are recorded too. So it's basically, I just asked what would it take to really help somebody improve their lives like long-term consistently? Because I saw that the, you know, people who read my blog long-term, what they struggle with a lot is consistency is, is being able to, you know, set a goal, pursue it until they achieve it and not fall, you know, off track. Yeah. That sounds pretty normal. It's ba yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's basically like, what would it take to create a counterforce that will keep people on track towards their goals, towards getting results? towards, um, you know, staying focused on what they want. And I thought, we, you know, I, I feel very lucky that I have so many friends that work in the field of personal growth, lots of authors, speakers, coaches, trainers, and so on. So we always encourage the heck out of each other. It's just normal <laughs> for me. But, but most of my blog readers do not have that kind of experience. They're, they're stuck with social circles that drag them down, that hold them back. Yeah. So I thought we really need, we need a bigger source of power and energy in the direction that people really want to go. And so I thought, I thought, could I actually create that for people? Could I actually give people the social circle that they need? Like yeah. take all those people, scoop them up and put them in one group together because they will, I, I, I've seen from you know, past experience when I meet these people in person, how they are. And I was like, these people need to come together. They need to connect with each other. They need to not just meet with me one-on-one. -on -one. They need to get connect as a group. And I, I saw a small slice of that when we do live events. We've done 16 workshops since 2009. And I would see how people are at these events. And they would constantly say things like, I had no idea there were so many people like me out there. You know, who are all these amazing, loving, caring people who are into personal growth? <laughs> yeah. like, how do I have more of them in my life? And some people would change their flights afterwards because they wanted to keep hanging out and they didn't want to go home. Wow. So That's I really cool. kind of it tugged at my heartstrings and I was like, I was like, wow, it's like, so it's not fair that I get to connect with these kinds of people so much and there's not a good and easy way for them to connect with each other. So it's been in existence now for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So the way it's turned out or it's turning out, how, how well do you feel that is an expression of your original intention? Or in other words, how happy are you with it? It's, it's better than I expected um, by this point. And the reason is, and this is something I have a tendency to um, underestimate in other people, is just how much co-creative energy flows into the process, how yeah. much other people contribute to it. 
you know, I often think like I have, it's because I started with blogging and because I started with game development. It's where you're working in an introverted way a lot. Yeah. When you start opening it up to doing live events or you have a group community, you, you, you know, I had this past tendency to just think that I'm the force that has to power the power this a lot. And it's not what happens <laughs> when you, right. bring, when you bring a community of very growth oriented people together, they keep making it better. So many of the ideas we implemented came from other people, not from me. And things happen in the group that I'm, I don't even touch. <laughs> it's just that you bring these people together and they'll form their own uh, subgroups, mastermind groups to encourage each other in certain ways. They'll do their own calls on the side to help each other. And it, and what I see myself as needing to do is really foster the culture and the values. Like one of our values is caring. And so we try to attract certain people, you know, who are really into caring about other humans. We're not trying to be the, the one group for everybody, but the, the right group for certain types of people. Yeah. Want to feel empowered and they're willing to empower others. Uh, if people are just all into life for themselves and they don't really care about contribution, they wouldn't be a good match for this type of group. When you yeah. get those kinds of people together who are aligned, they thrive because they feel like it's just it's so perfect. This is like, this is me. This is my home. These are my people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is my tribe. Finally, finally found. So on this point, knowing that there are people listening that I think are really interested in this, let me just ask you these three questions. What does it cost? How can people learn more about it? And who is it right for? Uh, the cost is, is $2,000 a year, which is... Um, I thought a lot about the price and I felt like that's about right. That's it's high enough to feel like a, a real commitment to people. It's low enough though, that um, the results can dwarf the price. Um, so we already have people in it who are like, I want to be in this for years, <laughs> um, which is cool. And what was the other part of the question? So um, how can they learn more or sign up and who is it right for? Uh, well, if they go to consciousgrowthclub.com, they they'll just there's just a waiting form for it right now because um, we're only opening once a year, and that's because we want to spend most of the time just focusing on serving the people inside. So our yeah, next so opening April honestly not going to be till April of 2020. Yeah, and then probably we're just going to open once a year. And part of the reason is I want to really focus on nurturing it and serving the community and not trying to grow too quickly. Yeah, I, I think our biggest we grew by 60 percent with our our, our launch just a few weeks ago. And if we, if we keep growing at that rate, wonderful. But if I, if we're growing at like 200, 300%, that might be a problem yeah. <laughs> quickly. So I, I, I want to balance the type of this group with what, um, with, you know, being able to keep the service level high and making sure people are getting results. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and you said, and, who is, who's is it for? Yeah. Like who's it perfect for? I mean, you've talked a little bit about this, people who care, people who are willing to support each other, people who are looking to elevate their own growth and be a part of other people's growth as well. But is there some other descriptor that you would use as somebody's listening to this going, well, I think I could pay two grand and I definitely would like to be a part of a supportive community. But there just may be a, a few other descriptors that you could say that if people heard, they're like, oh yeah, that's that totally checks all the boxes for me. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's people who are committed to personal growth. Like they get it. They, mm. they are perhaps even tired of having to justify their interest in personal development mm. uh, to, to somebody else. They want to be around people where, you know, if you say you're going to, to like a spirituality conference or a personal development seminar, there's other people who are like, when is it? I want to go with you. Yeah. <laughs> 
they want to be around those kinds of people, not the people that are like, what are you doing? You're, you're investing in this kind of stuff. You know, um, they want to be around their peers. It's, it's really for people who recognize at some point in their lives that they need a stronger peer group. And imagine what, what life would be like if you had 50 friends, 100 friends, always there for you 24-7 whenever you need them with any kind of challenge in any part of your life. Um, one thing that's unique about this type of group is that nobody – uh, nobody has to focus on just one area of life. Like it's not a group just for entrepreneurs or it's not a group just for yoga enthusiasts. It's for any and all aspects of personal growth. We talk about um, spirituality, sexuality. We talk about health, relationships, finances. Er everything is, is fair game in the group. As long as we're doing it consciously, like actually trying to make the best uh, and most intelligent decisions. Sounds beautiful. For ourselves and for the ripples we create. Yeah. Um, it's, it's for people who recognize that they want to combine ambition with heart alignment. Mm. They, they want to be like, um, they want to be caring and ambitious at the same time. I, th I think that's the ideal person who's really yeah. a good match for this. No, I, I love that. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing about that. Um, let, me, let me go back to the thing about the 40-day water fest. So will you tell me, the same, same things. What, what was your thinking behind it? Why did you do it? And what was it like? And what did you learn from it? Well, I, I decided to try, um, a, a previous year I did a fast for 17 days just to see what it was like. And so to be, to be clear there, and I know there's a lot of ways we use fasting as a term, right? But to, what, so with this, do I understand right that you didn't eat food for this 40 day period? And, and previously you're talking about this 17 days you did a fast. You didn't eat any food. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd researched fasting online. So I learned something about it. Uh, I'd never, before I did the 17 day one, I'd never fasted for more than like two days. I think the most I ever made was like two and a half days because I just got really hungry. And then I read about it and I realized, Oh, after it, after about three days, uh, for, for men, and I think it's four days for women, roughly, you, uh, the body shifts into a different mode and you're no longer hungry anymore. So you have that hunger for the first few days, but then it's people report it's a little easier beyond it. And I'd, I'd met some people who'd done longer fasts, like 20 days or so. And I thought that's interesting. You know, it seems like something I should try at some point. So I did the 17 day one and I thought, okay, yeah, it was like kind of sucky the first few days, but after that, it's not so bad. You just get used to lower physical energy, but you can manage. And I would have kept going with the 17-day one, except I had a trip coming up and I had to hop on a plane. And so I thought, okay, I better get off the fast because I've got to go speak at an event. And, you know, I, I, schedule got in the way. <laughs> so yeah. when I did the 40-day one, I was originally just setting to go for 30 days. And I, I decided I wanted a really big challenge. So I thought I'll do 30 days of water fasting along with 30 days of YouTube videos. So um, that way I could talk about the fast as I go and also it would provide proof so I don't have to worry about people not believing me because they can see me shrinking on camera <laughs> day by day. And I'm all, you know, I'm posting the videos the same day I'm recording them uh, and I'm sharing what the fast is really like. So I thought, okay, I'll try to commit to going, you know, 30 days this time. And since I'd already done 17 days, I thought I could do 30. So why not? <laughs> um, and then uh, each day I did uh, on YouTube and the series is still on my, on my YouTube channel. Um, so day one, I talk about the you know, fast, and then um, every day I do a personal growth lesson. So for the first five minutes or so of each video, I talk about what my experience of the fast is like up to that point. And then the rest of the video, which averages to about a half hour each day, is uh, some personal growth lesson. 
that I share. Even if I'm my, even if I'm not feeling great, if my, even if my energy's low, I'm like I'm gonna push through and do it. Yeah, that's commitment. I mean, that's 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 pretty hardcore. And 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 honestly, listening to to you share about it now, I think about for anybody who's listening, saying, "Look, if you're inspired by this, this is interesting to you. You, if you plan to do this, like consult your doctor, <laughs> right? I mean, this is potentially lethal, right? I mean, if you're not doing this in in a really safe manner." I mean, I suppose I feel like there's a bit of a disclaimer where you obviously you've, you've experimented with a lot of things in your life previous. This wasn't something you undertook like on a whim. I mean, you, you researched, you prepared, you were thoughtful and deliberate about the way you did it. And then, and then you went even beyond 30 days, right? To 40, which is very biblical, (laughs) right? 40, 40 days. I thought like, you know, I can't stop at 30 because like if Jesus can do 40, then why not? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, that's hardcore, man. So what, what, what did you, so first of all, how much weight did you lose? Um, I think it was like around 33 pounds. Wow. How much did you regain afterward? Like 33 pounds. <laughs> you did. So, so you yeah, came back. Eventually. Yeah. And then, and then I watched doing it for weight loss. I was doing it for the experience to see what it was like. And partly, right. partly for, um, I'd been exploring detoxification a lot to see what that was like. So yeah. Because on one of your videos, I, I watched you, you talk about the fact that like toward the end of the fast, especially where your energy levels did dip quite low, that you were at a point where you were expending like only 200 calories a day, according, I think it was according to your Apple watch. Oh yeah, it might be. I don't recall, but cause that was a little, that was a while ago, but uh, yeah. I mean, that's not like, yeah, that's pretty amazing because I think a lot of people's metabolic rate is they'll burn at least 1500 calories if they're. Uh, young, healthy male, you know, it's not unusual to burn 2,300, 2,500, but you, I was, I was sharing that I was probably sharing how many calories I was burning from movement. I think okay. I remember that now because yeah, I have the Apple watch still and it, it yeah. shows me how much movement I, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, uh, burned. So typically in a day, um, you know, especially when I'm exercising, it'll be between like 700, maybe to 1100, 1200 calories in a day that I'm burning from movement. Yeah. And, uh, especially if I have a good workout in there, but it, and if I, you know, if, if I was only hitting 200 calories, it means I'm really not moving a lot. So right. it's not, it's not counting my, my, uh, meta, you know, metabolism. It's just basically calories that the watch is detecting. I'm burning, you know, it's estimating what I'm burning from moving. Yeah. So it means I'm not moving a whole lot yeah. <laughs> those days. Yeah. Now that you've done it, you've done a 17 day, you've done a 40 day. Do you ever see yourself like doing it again? Would you do it again for any reason? Yeah. If I do it again, I don't know if I'd do another 40 day, but I could see myself doing that again. It wasn't really that bad. It was, uh, you know, it's, it's another one of those things where your perspective shifts when you have the experience versus when you've never had it before. I understand that a lot of people think it's impossible, but I I mean, I've been dealing with that kind of stuff for a long time. People used to tell me you can't make a living as a game developer independently. People told me you can't make a living as a blogger when I first started. They didn't even know what blogging was. You know, how could you make money doing that? Yeah. Uh, people, people always tell me you can't do certain things and I go and do them anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. so um, I, I researched it and I, you know, encountered other people who had done these kinds of fasts and I, I just looked at it intellectually and I was like, okay, what are the real risks? Like you mentioned, you know, you might die. Uh, and so I thought that was my assumption going into it. And when I actually researched it, I, I realized and discovered that the main risk is falling is like mm-hmm. you stand up too quickly, you feel faint and you fall. 
that the that's the biggest risk of fasting physically is falling and hurting yourself. Wow. And so I thought, okay, now that I know that that's a risk, I'm going to be extra careful when I get up. I'll hold on to furniture till I stabilize and I'll, I'll move slowly and gradually. But I could do, I could function just fine as long as I compensated for the effects of the fast, keeping my energy low. Some days I could go out, you know, for a two hour walk. It was no problem, but I'd be walking at about two thirds my normal pace. So I'd walk mm. a little more slowly, yeah. but I could still do it. I could still drive just fine. It was not a problem. Uh, if I wanted to, I could probably travel during a fast, but I, I wasn't planning to do that. So I just, I played it really safe yeah. in a lot of the ways. And I said, if anything starts really going wrong, I start feeling off physically. I started reading about the symptoms, like what to watch for if problems are starting to come into play. So I, I made a list of those and I would check it now and then just make sure, okay, I'm not having these problems. Everything seems fine. And I thought, you know, uh, I'm not an idiot. So if I start running into serious health problems, I'm not going to push through to, to 30 or 40 days. I'll just stop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I even mentioned that, you know, at the start of the video series, uh, that, that's the key is like, you be, be curious, but don't be foolish. Uh, you know, explore, but don't push yourself to the point of death. So yeah. if I thought if I'm risking death here, then I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. And that's the kind of thinking I would expect from somebody who wrote a book called Personal Development for Smart People, <laughs> to, to be honest. So if there was one takeaway, one lesson that stands out from you, from all of your experience with fasting, what is it? It's that the insider's perspective is always different than the outsider's perspective looking in. Mm. Is that you just don't learn what an experience is like until you do it. Yeah. Um, I, I understand fasting better for having done it, you know, sure. perspective on it shifts. It's not such a big deal to me anymore. I mean, looking at it, uh, if you've never done it, 40 days seems daunting, but actually to look at it again, doing 40 days without food, I'd be most concerned about the first three days when I have to go deal with the hunger. But by the time I reach day four, day five, day six, I'm thinking, okay, smooth sailing to 40. Like, honestly, those, those 37 days after the first three, that that's easy, easier than the first three. Wow. <laughs> it's just getting through the first three. It's like, once that, once you're there, it's like, okay, I could coast for a while. At least that's what my experience was like. Yeah. So knowing that, that that's what it's like, if I were to do fasting again, I, you know, I'll probably do a, fa a fast again, maybe a shorter one, like six, seven days or something like that. I'll try since I haven't done it in a while in um, uh, next month. And it's just, you know, try having that experience again, see what that's like. So what 30-day trials have you had in the hopper, so to speak, that you haven't actually pulled the trigger on, but you've been thinking about, you know, maybe I'll do or maybe you're planning to do? Right now, it's, it's kind of empty. Um, there's one that people have suggested, which is a funny one, but I don't know if I would want to do it because it doesn't really inspire me, which is to do 30 days of silence. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. So, and I'm like, how does that work as a blogger? <laughs> does that mean I can't write or I can't speak? And I do speaking too. I do coaching calls. So I'm like, okay, I have to tell everybody, you know, no coaching calls because, or I'll just mime everything. I don't know. Yeah, you, you <laughs> or have somebody else do them. Uh, it's possible, but I, I like to go with the ones that inspire me personally, where I feel like this is a really cool thing to do. Yeah. So the 30 days of silence one doesn't really inspire me that much right, right now. There's, there's nothing really, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything on the horizon, there's nothing really coming up in that area. Uh, when something starts coming through pretty strongly, then I have a tendency to, to do it usually within a fairly short period of time. 
Yeah. Uh, right now I'm in the midst of doing um, a group challenge. That's one of the things we do in, in Conscious Growth Club is we do uh, every month on the first of every month, we start a new group challenge together. So this hmm. is a way of doing these 30 day trials together as a community thing. How do you pick the ones you do? Um, well, partly by just going with the flow of inspiration. We get to try to get a sense of where the group energy wants to go. So for, for the May challenge, uh, we're doing an exercise challenge. So it's a challenge of doing some form of exercise every day. And you let people choose what theirs is. You don't say like 300 burpees or something. No, no, <laughs> that'd be a lot of burpees. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it, it's basically like giving a challenge, some structure, but enough flexibility that somebody can find a way to do it. So for even for the exercise challenge, you can choose to practice meditation a certain, mm. certain amount of time each day. If you don't yeah. feel like doing the physical aspect of it, you can turn it into any kind of exercise that you want to do. The idea is just to participate in something that helps your mind and your body. And, and so when I, you know, when I do these challenges with the group, then I think, feel like, okay, I got to represent, I got to do, you know, do this with them. So I'm, you know, every, every day this month I've exercised either um, cardio or strength training, you know, um, just, and then we have a group progress log where everybody shares what they did each day. So awesome. check those off. And so people hold you accountable. So it's that, when you have that accountability, you're just like, I can't cheat today. <laughs> yeah. Get people down because everybody's watching. So. Yeah. People are going to notice. Oh, that's great. But we don't know what our next month's one will be yet. We haven't chosen that yet. But like in the, the last week before a new month starts, that's when we'll, we'll pick something and see, what, see if we can figure out what the aligned path is there. That's we'll, awesome. think of, we'll think of doing challenges in the body, mind, heart, and spirit area. So we're thinking like this is a body challenge, but mostly we're doing this month. So next month we might focus on some kind of mind challenge. Mm. Might be something related to productivity, habits, and then maybe you know we might do a heart challenge where it has to do with gratitude or generosity. You know who knows? Um, a spirit challenge you know, that can be, have something to do with expressing your purpose. Ooh, think about thirty days of forgiveness. Mm. Oh, that's hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> 30 days of apologizing. Yes. To your parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I want, although I have a few more questions, I, I want to be sure to ask you uh, if time allows. I, I want to reserve some time for the enlightening lightning round. Okay. Sounds good. First question. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Life is like a simulation. Hmm. Okay. Number two, what's something at which you wish you were better? Music, uh, composition, creating music. Hmm. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I actually have that shirt. <laughs> and it's, a, it's a quote from my favorite movie, The Princess Bride, and it says on the shirt, as you wish. Hmm. Number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Um, there's a couple that come to mind. Um, one is the prophet by Khalil Gibran. And another one is the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey. Both books, um, that I have are very well worn because <laughs> I've read them multiple times and I just, I, I love them both for very different reasons. Yeah. Why? Tell me a little bit. I know it's the lightning round, but um, say more. Why those two books? The Prophet I like because it, it encapsulates wisdom in such short paragraphs and sentences. Uh, it, it just has um, it just has a beautiful way of expressing certain things. 
and, and just how you know, it has these short chapters about different parts of life, like on work and career, on, on marriage and, and so on. And each one is maybe just a couple of pages, but you just read it and it, it's, it sinks in. And I, I think it's, um, it, it's, it's beautiful, you know, just the, the poetry of it. It reads, it reads like profound poetry in a way, but it's, it's really written as prose. But then you just think, wow, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like secrets to life, but in a very short, condensed space. Right on. And tell me what about why The Seven Habits? Uh, one thing I loved about this book is just the, the, the structure of it. Um, my, my college degrees are in computer science and mathematics. And I, when I got into the field of personal development, I found a lot of the books on it very wishy-washy. They just sort of flowed out there in this abstract, squishy, soft land. And it, I felt like, what's the structure behind this? You know, is, growing up and you know, learning computer programming, I was used to thinking algorithmically and knowing how one piece of code connects with another, uh, thinking in terms of mathematical concepts as well, you know, structure, rules, laws, um, seeing how things add up. You know, geometry, algebra, calculus, having these um, these harder ways of thinking about reality, like more having more structure to them. And one thing I didn't like about the personal growth field is just how unstructured some of the ideas seemed to be, mm. how people would share ideas. And I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. But this other book is writing the opposite yeah. <laughs> and saying you shouldn't do this. And so what's the truth there? Like where, where are the core principles? What actually works? What can I trust? Where do I ground my exploration of this space? And The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is one of the uh, first books I read. It had this sense of groundedness to it. Yeah. Like principles, principles. I like that idea. It's not just like techniques or methods, but start with these core principles. And interestingly, my own book ended up with seven core principles, except instead of writing about effectiveness, like Stephen Covey did, I was writing about principles of personal growth. And it that book was one of the ones that inspired me to, to dig deep, to look, as, look for what's the core structure. If I could say uh, that there's a geometry behind personal growth, what would it look like? That's what I really got curious about and wanted to see. And that's why that book was so inspiring to me because I felt like it, it really went deep. Yeah, no doubt. That book's touched a lot of lives for sure. Mine in, included. All right. Thank you. Okay. You travel a ton. What's one travel hack, something you do or something you own that makes your travel less painful or more enjoyable or something, or maybe something you take with you? One is to travel lightly. Almost always when I travel, um, even if it's going to be for a month, I only take a carry-on bag and a laptop bag, uh, no big suitcase. And I, I just learned to, you know, to, to, Go lightly with it with the traveling. Another thing is, um, I love to travel. My favorite way to travel is just book a one way ticket and not know when I'm going to be back. Um, so when I when I travel, it often starts where I'll get a speaking invitation somewhere, or there's a conference or something I'm going to, and so I'll book a one way ticket, go to that event, and then it's go with the flow of invitation and inspiration. So one time I flew to Zurich, Switzerland to speak at a conference there. And I had a place to stay for about a week or so that was provided by the conference people. But then I didn't know where I was going to be after that. And, and uh, Rochelle was with me. And so we're like, okay, where should we go next? <laughs> we didn't know. Uh, but then somebody from the conference 
who was from Paris, invited us to go stay in her apartment in Paris. And she was actually the sister of a previous coaching client of mine. Wow. So I thought, oh, beautiful. And, and she said she had a friend's apartment that she could stay in. So she let us stay in her place in Paris for, for free for like a week. And, I, and we were like, awesome, because we'd been to Paris before and we love Paris. So we were like, sure. You know, so we took a, we took a train. We went to go see the large Hadron Collider um, in, in uh, Geneva on the way there. And um, kind of went there. Oh, I should. I I forgot. Even before that, we got an invitation to stay in Lucerne, Switzerland, with one of the other speakers at the conference. So we went to her family's house and stayed there for a few days, wow. uh, along with some of the other speakers from the event. And we kind of just hung out, had a beautiful time. And then we took the train from there, um, go to Paris, stay there for a while. Then somebody else from that same conference said, "Hey, I I live on a farm in southern Spain. I'd love to, you know, have you guys visit if you want to come down and hang out for a while." So we're like, sure, why not? So, yeah. so after, after our stay in Paris ended, we flew down to Malaga in southern Spain, and we stayed there on this farm, and we were just super lazy. It was like a, it was a fruit farm where we were just eating fresh avocados and oranges right off the trees, and there were chickens and goats there, and we were playing with them and stuff, and the goats would like jump up on my lap, and little, little baby goats and stuff. It was just, uh, just so beautiful. It was like room temperature outside the whole time. We had this view overlooking these beautiful green rolling hills all the way down to the beach. Um, and just, uh, you know, just enjoyed um, life. And, yeah. and that's something, especially as, as Americans, I don't think we do enough of. Um, yeah. it, I, I really gain a lot from other cultures just slowing down and enjoying life and appreciating simple pleasures like eating fresh fruit right off a tree. Yeah especially those sensory experiences. That's amazing. And as I, as I hear you sharing one of the things that I think about, and I could be mistaken on this, but as I listen, I'm, I'm hearing someone share his experience who has consciously shaped his life to allow him to do these kinds of things where I think a lot of people who are hearing this might be saying, Oh yeah, you know, that's the kind of thing I might've done between years in college or yeah, that's the life I'd like to have but maybe when I retire or oh, it's easy for Steve to say, because, you know, he's, he's created his financial life in a way where he doesn't have to work, you know, a nine to five or something that people were just kind of almost dismissing it as like something for other people and not for themselves, even though they probably really like to have that kind of freedom, that kind of spontaneity in their life. If that is true, which I know that's an assertion or an assumption, but what do you say to people who might be hearing like how incredible this way of being, this way of living is, and they might want it for themselves, but they also might feel like, oh, that's not really possible for me. I point to my shirt and say, as you wish. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not, it's not that we get what we want. It's that we get what we're willing to accept, you know, what we're willing to tolerate. And it's what you're, it's not that you're not saying yes to these things but you're saying yes to something else that's getting in the way. And it, you have to say no to something first. You have to set some boundaries. And that's, that's how, why I often find benefit in seeing life as a simulation because I feel like I can negotiate with it. It's not something that overpowers me and it's not something that I can overpower, but we can cooperate. If, there's, if I feel like I'm on a path that's doing something that could be good for myself and for others, I can propose an offer of sorts to the simulation. Right. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll say like, I want to, um, you know, it, like even if I'm doing say the 30 days of Disneyland, I share that as an offer with reality. Like I'm going to do this 30 days of Disneyland, 
but I'm also going to blog about it along the way to share what the experience was like. So I didn't do a blog post every day, but a few posts along the way to share what the experience was like. So if, you know, if there was any value I could provide from the experience, I could turn it into something shared. And it's the same thing with like traveling. Uh, if I focus on doing those things just for myself, I get stuck and they don't happen. But if I say, um, if I can learn how to do these beautiful things in life, then I can teach them to other people and I can share that value and I can explain how to do it and what frames work and what frames don't work. Um, that works too. I, you know, this, this started with me going to speak at a conference in Zurich for free. I wasn't paid to speak at the event. And so I, I do a lot of free speaking, but free speaking pays back because those invitations came from the people who are at the event, yeah. <laughs> like one of the other speakers or a couple of the attendees. That's, that's how I can travel a lot of the times. Um, I get a lot of invitations from readers in my blog. It's, it, 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 it's a different way of holding wealth. You can hold wealth um, in money or possessions, but you can also hold wealth in the form of social goodwill. And a, a good model there I think of is, say, the Dalai Lama. So the Dalai Lama has got enough goodwill that he's created that if he wants a flight anywhere, probably airlines will give it to him for free. If he wants to stay anywhere, probably the hotels will host him for free. <laughs> sure. Does, does somebody like him even need money? And, I, and can he be wealthy without money? Can he, you know, is he always going to be taken care of? Probably. If he ever has a need, somebody's going to fill it. And I thought that's an interesting way of thinking about wealth. Yeah. Is, is like, imagine, could you be wealthy with no money? And I, and I, I, I seriously asked that question. And my model of wealth growing up was actually from watching um, Star Trek, The Next Generation. It was like my, my, my favorite show. Um, it ran from 1987 to 1994. And I just absolutely love that show. And I've seen every episode a bazillion times. <laughs> uh, in fact, my, my wife and I still sometimes watch it to this day. And what I especially love about that show is just how the people on it, they don't worry about working for money. All their needs are met. You know, they live, the, they live in abundance. They get to spend their time focusing on what they appreciate and enjoy from life, which is traveling the galaxy. And yeah, they have their share of challenges, of course, but they focus on doing interesting work because they love the work. Nobody does a job for the pay. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I thought that's how I want to live. And that's what I want my model of wealth to be like. It's not that I need to make a certain amount of money. It's that I need to make money irrelevant in my life. And that, that's what I've set out to do. I've set out to live in such a way that I can largely ignore money. And then I found that by living that way, money shows up to the extent that I need it. And, and, and usually extra, like more than I need. Um, and then I just find ways to, you know, like do things with or without money. Like I've, I've gone and traveled through Europe a, a few times without paying for a place to stay. And even my flights to and from there were paid for because uh, say I go speak at a conference, the per people doing the conference, they pay for my flights. So they, pay, they, cover, they give me a place to stay for like up to a week and pay the travel expenses. I go speak for an hour in an event and now I'm in Europe. And I was yeah. like, okay, let's travel around. Let's see what Pretty good equation. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, it seems like it's a lifestyle that works, but it doesn't actually require much money at all. It's actually pretty cheap. But so much flows just from that focus on contribution. That's what I've, I've found is that we focus on following an interesting purpose and giving and actually turning what's what would otherwise be a very selfish goal, something that's just good for us, mm -hmm. and opening it up to be beneficial to other people, it just ignites something there. It, yeah. really, it really invites a flow that you just don't see when it's entirely an individual goal. Yeah. I almost always try to turn my, my own goals into social ones. 
because when I turn them into social goals, they get accomplished. When I keep them at an individual level, they don't get done. Isn't so it's the result. I, I, yeah. When I go after the result, I realize it's got to be about more than just myself. Yeah. And I, I know a test for a bad goal is if it's just about me. If I'm the only one who will benefit from the achievement of that goal, it's not a good goal. Yeah. Even when I did the fasting, I wouldn't have done it if it was just a private pursuit. But if I can say, I'm going to pursue this goal and share it with other people, share the videos, share the results, share the experience. So anybody who wants to know what it's like to do a 40-day fast, they can go see my videos on YouTube for free and watch the whole series. <laughs> they can even go day by day. Now, their experience may be different, but if they learn something that's helpful, yeah. great. No, I, I think the way you've said that about the goal being about more than just you, you know, is something that I, first of all, I think it's very insightful. It's something that I've seen, you know, in my parents' lives as successful entrepreneurs that their work, as I perceive it, was never just about them or even just about our family, but about much more, whether it was the employees or the customers or the broader community, you know, so I've, I've definitely seen that close to home. And, and so what you're saying really resonates with me. Beautiful. Okay. So that was, that was in response to this about travel. <laughs> All right. Next question. What one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Uh, well, I gave giving up animal products years ago. So I did that in January of 1997, just stopped eating all animal products and having gone back. So that seems to be helping. Um, I know energy has been good. Health has been good. Haven't had any major health problems along the way. Um, so that I feel grateful for. Um, one is uh, another one is more emotional, which is just don't hold grudges. <laughs> don't, don't get, don't get into, you know, uh, fights with people and focus on cooperation more than competition hmm. because it really, it really incredibly reduces the stress that we have in life. When we see ourselves so much as individuals and we uh, feel like we're competing against the world or the world is against us, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not so good for our health either. What, um, what I really root everything in is trusting reality. And I think that's really the core is that if I don't trust reality, it automatically creates stress for me. If I don't feel like I'm safe here in this reality, if I can't trust what reality is going to do next um, and think that it will be beneficial on some level, even if it's only on a spiritual level, even if it seems like it's a hard challenge that's being pushed on me, mm -hmm. uh, if I can always forgive reality and always trust reality, mm -hmm. that, um, that helps a lot with reducing the stress level. And what it does is it turns my relationship with life into a positive form of stress, which, which is called eustress. You know, it's like a, the, the, the positive version. So it's not a negative feeling. It's a feeling of engagement and motivation. That's a pretty big shift. And one, obviously you've consciously undertaken, but I think a lot of people don't realize that that ultimately is a decision that's available to them. Yeah, exactly. We don't know if we can trust reality, but if you lean into that, that direction, that possibility, and you start cultivating a more trusting relationship and you think, there's a reason I'm here. There's a reason this reality exists. There's something I'm meant to explore here or do here. Yeah. This is not a place that's designed to punish me. It's actually designed to empower me. And if I just can always find a way to give reality the benefit of the doubt and think that everything it's throwing at me is meant to be a lesson, a growth-oriented challenge, something that makes me stronger, something that makes me smarter, something that helps me connect more with people. 
you always see things through that lens again and again. And I don't always succeed at that when I'm in the heat of a moment, you know, like, like, damn you reality, you know, why you have to bring me this problem, you know, right? Why now? Of all things, you know, I'm busy doing the launch and this thing has to break. Really? You know? Yeah. Um, but then afterwards, uh, I compose myself. I'm like, okay, all right. What's the lesson here? What's why is this coming up? And it could be a lesson about I need to handle the little stuff in life too, not just the big things. You know, sometimes it's simple lessons. Uh, it's it points points out your defects so you can grow stronger. Yeah, I I just find that such an empowering perspective, where instead of taking something that's maybe closer to a victim view or something, and it makes me think of something. I once heard Ken Keyes Jr., the author of, um, what did he call it? Um, something about conscious <laughs> consciousness in the title of his book. I'm drawing a blank right now. But he says, everything is perfect for either your enjoyment or your growth. Mm. I was like, is that literally true? Like, that's an interesting thought. The, the Handbook to Higher Consciousness, that's Ken's book. But have you read that by chance? No, I, don't, I haven't. That, by the way, that might be interesting for you because I had the privilege of hearing Wayne Dyer speak in January, the January before he passed. It was the only time I ever got to hear him. Um, But I was so impressed that on the flight home, I read his uh, memoir. I can see clearly now. And in the memoir, I read that he had read this book, The Handbook to Higher Consciousness, which is out of print now, by Ken Ken Keyes Jr. And that was a book that really inspired him on his journey to serve others and to continue his growth. So then of course I tracked that book down and read it and I loved it. So as somebody who's into consciousness and growth, um, that might be, that might be a book at some point um, you'd enjoy as well. I don't know. Beautiful. Well, one thing I should mention about uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer, which kind of ties back to a story uh, we were talking about earlier is that um, I had a chance to meet him in person too, because um when I saw him speak on that stage, the, the funny thing was is that three years later, I ended up speaking at that same I Can Do It conference because Hay House became the book publisher of my book. And then I ended up getting invited to speak at that same conference twice, once in Vegas and once in Tampa. And, and since there was a speaker's dinner after the conference, I got to meet uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer there. And I got awesome. to you know, talk to him and say, say hi. And what was also strange is like Reed Tracy and I ended up in a mastermind group together last year. Wow. The, the president of Hay House. So it was kind of, kind of uh, funny just how that, all that wove together. So it was actually very literal, you know, when I saw myself being on that stage. It wasn't the same stage, but it was in the same city yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the same event. And so that was, uh, it, it was like, you know, the, the vision. And when I, when I gave up to give, to give my first talk at that event, I actually told the audience that story about how I, I was at this event and like three years earlier, seeing Dr. Wayne Dyer speak. And I was thinking, I was supposed to be that guy on the stage. And they love that story. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Because I suspect a lot of people in that audience have that same desire, that same aspiration, but they don't translate that intention into reality. So that is pretty cool. Okay, so last questions in this lightning round. This was the least lightning lightning round I've ever, <laughs> I've ever led, which is fine, which is totally fine. But okay. So next question, what's one thing you wish every American knew? Hmm. <laughs> what's one thing that every American knew? That's a good question. Um, I haven't, haven't given that much thought. I would say, um, you know, what I, what I generally see when I travel outside the USA 
is that um, America tends to have a very competitive posture, um, especially in work. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, I would say something to the effect of there's more to life than work and that cooperation is better than competition. Like, especially when I've gone to um, you know, like Europe, uh, like Eastern Europe, when I was in Romania, and just seeing the relationships that people have there with each other and how friendly they are. It was like when I, when my plane touched down, it felt like I had 10 friends instantly. It was like so quick, just the friendships that develop and how easily people connected socially. And I thought, this is what we need more of in the USA, where people lean on their relationships. And even if so, even as I, as I was walking around uh, Bucharest and seeing buildings crumbling, um, and you know, I'd be walking down the street and there'd be a pile of rubble on the ground. And I'd be like, where, where'd that come from? And I look up and see it came from the building next to, next to it. It was just like crumbling on the ground. And I tell my friends, anybody going to sweep that up? I was like, eh, nah, <laughs> just how it is. You know, you see holes, big holes in the sidewalk that are six, six feet deep, where if you're not looking where you're going, you can fall in it. And I say, what, what happens if somebody steps in that and they hurt themselves? And my friends say, we laugh. <laughs> I was like, seriously? And I thought, okay, so this is like parts of the city are crumbling. And yet the people I found, a lot of them were very happy. And it was because of their social relationships, their social bonds. I think that's something we don't quite invest in enough in the USA is we focus too much on individual success and it can be very isolating. Yeah. And, and I, I want to, I want to help to remedy that like very directly, you know, through creating conscious growth club or just encouraging more people to connect in person um, especially with other growth oriented people yeah. realizing that that's a huge part of life. That's where we get so much of our enjoyment from life is our relationships. Yeah, absolutely. We tend to put those so much on the back burner and, and yet we can combine relationships with career success. We can still have the career success and you'll find it easier and more flowing if you make it a, a co-creative effort rather than just, it's all about you. You know, you have to shine, you have to get your trophies and that becomes pretty limiting after a while to just focus on the individual achievement. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Okay, what's the best piece of relationship advice you've ever received and successfully implemented? Hmm. Listening <laughs> would be one. Um, getting to know the other person. In fact, it's in um, Stephen Covey's book, uh, Seven Habits, Seek First to, under, to Understand, Then to Be Understood. So really getting to know somebody um, and getting to know what their needs are, their problems and challenges. This has been good for, for blogging, for writing, for doing workshops, for helping people. Um, and actually let go of pretending to care. And s- because pre- we do a lot of that, especially in the USA, pretending to care. Mm-hmm. We do that on social media. You know, oh boy, your yoga posture. Okay, I'm going to like that. You know, <laughs> good for you. But do we really care? Um, and the problem is when we do a lot of that pretending to care, it gets in the way of finding what we really care about. Mm. And, uh, I, I found this wasn't so much advice anybody gave me, but when I, when I made that distinction about where I was pretending to care, mm-hmm. I said, I'm just going to stop pretending that I care about certain things <laughs> and actually deliberately say no to them. It led me to connect more with what I really cared about. Um, like, like, for example, there are certain traditions I just don't do because I found them kind of empty and hollow for me like giving gifts for holidays and birthdays. Mm-hmm. I, I just decided years ago, this always feels off to me, um, buying gifts for people. 
like because it's a certain time of year, not because I feel a certain way, but because it's a certain type of year, I have to go shopping for gifts. Right. I don't really like shopping for gifts for, for, for other people. Um, I know what I want, but I don't always know what other people want. Right. And tend, tend to be kind of bad at that. So I just decided one year, I'm not even going to bother doing that anymore. And I don't expect gifts from anybody. And I don't really want to do that kind of you know, gift exchange. So I just opted out of that. I don't know. It was maybe a decade ago or so I did that. And I found I've been a lot happier. That's very un-American of you, Steve. <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> um, but instead, then what it showed me is more of what I really care about, which yeah. is like spending time with people. Like instead of doing gift exchanges, my wife and I will go to Disneyland or something and spend yeah. time with each other. And like that's how we prefer to celebrate the, hol- the holidays. She loves going to Disneyland like at Christmas time when it's all, the park's all decorated and stuff. And so... Um, when I got you know, getting that pretending to care out of the way really opens up real caring. Like where's, where's the real caring? Yeah. How do you find that? How do you find what you really care about? Cause when you find something you really care about, it provides a source of motivation and yeah. that's true of work. It's true of relationships. If we keep chasing what we don't care about or keep it, keep tolerating the stuff we're pretending to care about in our lives, we don't shed that. It blocks us from really finding those, those more heart centered paths. Yeah. And, and although I, I haven't heard you use this word in, in this part of the conversation, what I'm hearing in this is authenticity, right? When we stop being inauthentic by pretending to care about something we don't care about, what naturally arises is authenticity. Yeah, very true. So for anybody who's looking for a way to be more authentic, if that in any way is a desire of yours, perhaps Steve has just shared a key <laughs> to that in stop pretending to care about what you no longer or you know, you never really cared about in the first place. So even if it's just video games that you care about, then play lots of video games for a while because I did that when I was younger and ended up being a computer game developer. And that led to an interesting progression. Sometimes, you know, life has its own way of taking you down an interesting path. Yeah. Well, okay. And so my last question here in the enlightening lightning round, and you've talked a little bit about money already and had this really interesting question about, um, can I be wealthy without money? Right. So maybe there's already that aspect of this conversation, but I'll ask a similar conversation or a question as I did about relationships. What's the most useful piece of advice or learning you've ever found and successfully applied when it comes to money? Uh, that was, that's, that's, that's an easy one actually. Uh, Cause there was a, a profound shift when I was first running my computer games business, it wasn't going well. I was just sinking into debt and going broke, and eventually I was about to declare bankruptcy, and, and then um, and I also got a notice that I was getting kicked out of my apartment because I couldn't pay the rent. So I was living in uh, Marina del Rey at the time on the, uh, near the beach in Los Angeles, and um, I've got like three days to move my stuff out and find another place to live with no money, <laughs> which was a, a challenge to, to say the least. And so I, I walked down the beach. I used to go running a lot along the beach. Uh, running was something I did, especially to relieve the stress that I was uh, under. And so I, I walked down, sat down on the sand next to the Santa Monica Pier, and I'm looking out at the ocean. And I'm thinking, you know, at least you're free. You know, at least you're not calling me 10 times a day asking when can I make a payment. The, speaking of the ocean. Yeah. You're saying. Right, because you're looking out at the ocean, saying this. At the me. ocean, talking to this, talking to the ocean. Like at right. least you're not charging me to sit here. I was, <laughs> right. I was literally getting ten phone calls a day from creditors and stuff. You know, asking like, when can you make a payment? When can you make a payment? And it was just like ridiculous. And I had to like disconnect my phone after a while because um, I was behind on so many payments for so many things. So 
I'm like, okay, I'm going bankrupt and I got no money and this is not working. And I've been working hard to try to build my games business and it didn't work out. I worked with, you know, it's part, partly things started going downhill when I got kind of screwed over in one bad business deal and it just, you know, took a turn for the worse and I never quite recovered from it. And so I thought I'm doing something wrong here. Like this is not how I want to be living. And I realized I tried hard and there were some good things that, you know, that I'd learned in business, but it wasn't working financially. And I, what I most regretted was just all the stress I experienced, you know, like mm-hmm. how, str- how stressful those, those five, first five years were. Mm-hmm. Which for me, it was like from 1994 up to early 1999. And I thought, I just can't keep going like this going forward. I'm not going to do another five years like I did the last five years. And so I, I started asking um, a really interesting question. And I thought, um, what if I never figure out the financial side of my life? Like I tried hard for five years trying to start my own business right out of, right out of college and I screwed it up and who knows if I'm going to be going to make better decisions going forward or if I'm going to go through this again. Um, and I thought it felt like a lot of stuff that happened was outside my direct control. I was trying hard and I thought this is just not how I want to live my life. <laughs> uh, I don't want to put my, put all the stress out there in my reality. So I thought, is it possible to always be broke or always in debt for the rest of my life and still be happy? Like if I, if I just let go of the stuff that I feel like I couldn't control, what could I control? Mm-hmm. And, and um, could I control my own happiness? And I, and I thought that would be really interesting if I realized I could be happy and broke at the same time, because then I would just be happy no matter what was happening with my finances, like decouple those two. Yeah. I realized, I realized when I thought about it seriously, I thought, I thought about it on the beach for a couple of hours and that was really transformational for me because I realized I could live an amazing life. Even if I had no money, I could, I could live on the beach. I could sleep on the beach. <laughs> I could, um, I could go into libraries and read amazing books. And I know you're a lover of books as well. I, yep. I could read all these great books. Yep. I could learn to play music. I could talk to people. And I, I realized it would be a different way of living. I'd have to focus on social skills, on courage. I'd have to lean more on other people for help and support. But when I realized it was actually kind of an invitation that like, like being broke wasn't a sentence, it was an invitation hmm. to, to thinking about life differently and to focusing on what I really enjoyed. And so then I did just that. I basically said, I'm not going to keep um, living with the focus on, um, on trying to make money. I'm going to just start doing what I enjoy. And I'm going to start living to be happy instead. Mm-hmm. And the next five years, um, my business turned around. Things became more abundant. I started doing things I would never do before from the old mindset. I started volunteering. I volunteered to help out in a trade association and I started helping other software developers, even though my business was not doing well. I was making like $300 a month for my software sales, which was not enough to live off of. So I start, I did some tutoring on the side to help make ends meet and barely made enough money to squeak by. Um, and it, it, it turned everything around within a year. I was making plenty of money and it, things were going better and better and better. And it was so weird because it took a mindset shift to do that. It wasn't, a, I was actually working fewer hours and getting better results because wow. I started opening up to aspects like community. I started focusing more on helping other people because I felt like my situation is helpless. Whatever I do is just not working. I felt very disempowered by trying to work on my own goals because they were not getting me anywhere. Yeah. So I thought, why, do I, why would I keep doing the same thing? Let's just forget that approach. Let's yeah. just help other people because that's where I was actually getting results. Yeah. So, and that's, that's what turned everything around was helping other people because then they started helping me when I needed it. That's amazing. And I, like, I'm really inspired by that story because 
my understanding is, and I don't know any of these people personally, but I've you know read about it, heard about it, that I think there's many people who find that themselves in a similar situation, feeling like a failure in business or you know not having the financial life that they want, and really in a moment of introspection like the one you were describing, you know where you were looking at the ocean they actually make a different decision and they make a decision to end their own life. And it hap- I think it happens every day. I mean, I was in India last year and learned about there's something, if the stat is to be believed, like 300 farmers a day who just can't make a living doing the work they're doing the way they're doing it and they, they end their lives. And it's, it's just really remarkable to me that you did, in fact, make an empowering shift in perspective and then what followed from it is really, um, I think it's really beautiful. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. Okay. So that got us through the, um, the lightning round. So the last part is about the creative process. And to be honest, we've covered a lot of that already in the beginning. So let me ask you these two questions. The first one is about, I believe I read this in, in the past, so I might be mistaken, but, um, I understand there's some kind of a criminal history in your, in your background. Is that, but that's something you write, you've written about, you talk about publicly sometimes, right? It's in the first, it's in the introduction to my book. That's right. So tell me about that. Uh, well, when I, when I went to, uh, to college, um, I went to college actually two times. The first time I went to UC Berkeley and I felt uh, like just unmotivated to be in school. I was majoring in computer science at the time, but I was finding the classes really boring and checked out from them. And so I started like in the first month after I was there, um, like I think some friends and I were talking about like possibly shoplifting something from a record store. And I thought, Ooh, that sounds kind of exciting. And so I went back later on my own and I was like, I did just that. And it was like this jolt of adrenaline and like, ah, now I feel awake and alive, you know, just doing something stupid, like stealing some cassette tapes or CDs or whatever. Um, and it got me on a path of doing more and more of that. And eventually I connected with a partner and we started doing things together and started escalating. Oh no. (laughs) You know, we were stealing, like going into department stores and stealing like hundreds of dollars worth of stuff at a time. Um, And I'd, I'd gotten arrested like maybe four months after I started on my own. And then I got arrested like three more times. So I think I'd been arrested four times. And the first time it was just like a slap on the wrist and some community service. And the next time it was like something similar. Um, And and then eventually, like the, the fourth time I got arrested, it was for, um, I was 19 years old at the time, and it was for um, felony grand theft because I was doing this in uh, the Bay Area in California, and the limit there at the time was $400 is, the, is the, what determines whether it's petty theft, which is a misdemeanor, a more minor crime, or grand theft, which is a felony. And I was stealing like, I think at the time it was $458 worth of stuff, if I recall. <laughs> um, So it's just over the limit for grand theft. And with priors, I was looking at probably a year or two in state prison for, you know, because I've been doing too much of this too, too quickly in like 18 months, you know, four arrests is a lot. So that was not so good. Um, And I was kind of freaking out about the experience and didn't really want to do that. I'd, you know, I had to spend uh, three days in in jail in Sacramento where I got arrested uh, because I wouldn't tell them who I was. I wasn't, I didn't have any ID on me, but they were eventually able to identify me through my fingerprints. And um, I was, you know, I was pretty scared. And at the same time, I got a, you know, when I got out of jail, then for the three days, I got a letter saying I was kicked out of school um, because I wasn't going to class because I was doing all this crazy illegal stuff instead. 
because it was more fun. <laughs> and um, and uh, I realized, you know, my life was pretty much a train wreck at the time. <laughs> it was not going down a positive direction. Um, and I told my parents, and of course they were upset. And you know, um, I, I got a lawyer, and I w- I went to court. And and actually, before I went to court, I went to go talk to the lawyer. And he was telling me, he was like, well, you know, it's like you're caught red-handed, so there's not much we can do here, but we can do a plea deal. And he's like, uh, you know, I have good relationships with the district attorney, and so we, you know, we can, we can, you know, see. So says since this is your first offense, we can get it reduced to a misdemeanor, and you'll get off with some community service. And I'm thinking, first offense? Why does he think it's a first offense? And I heard this. You know, I was, I was like, in my mind, I'm like thinking, do I tell my lawyer? It's like, to, if he doesn't know, does that mean the court doesn't know? And if they're going to run this through as a first offense, that would be awesome. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I wasn't sure what to do. And I'm sweating there. And not, I'm just a teenager. I'm not, not sure what to you know, do in this situation. And this voice in the, my back of my mind just says, keep your damn mouth shut. And I thought, okay. So I, I just didn't say anything. And they go to court and my heart sinks because when I go to the, when I go to the court, I see on the docket listed, it has um, other aliases listed for my name from previous priors. So I'm like, how could this be a first offense if I'm already in their system and have aliases from fake names I'd given them before when I was arrested? <laughs> so, so I was like, there's, uh, there's no way they is going to do this as a first offense. So I go through and, and, um, you know, my lawyer still thinks it's the first offense, so he proceeds. And five minutes, we're in and out, and I get sixty hours of community service. They think it's a first offense, and that's how they process it. Wow! And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I just got super crazy lucky. I'm like, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. Um, and I was a bit freaked out. But what was what was really strange is that um, before I'd I'd gone to court, I just like surrendered to the idea that I was going to prison for a year or two. Cause I was just like, there's no way this is going to work out. You know, so they're, they're going to know it's like something, something's going to trigger it in their system or whatever. Mm-hmm. How did they, they're going to have to add it up because how did they find me by running my fingerprints? Why was I in their system already? There's too many pieces they would just have to put together, but thank goodness for bad software, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or whatever they were using back in the nineties. Yeah. That probably wouldn't happen today. Maybe. I don't know. But I'm like, thank goodness that programmer didn't do things correctly or whoever wrote the software that, you know, connected the dots for them. Somebody had a bug or <laughs> whatever it was, but I was like, I was saved by, you know, a computer glitch or a bad software or, or some mismanagement or misorganization, you know, like, or, div- or divine providence, right? And then, I mean, you changed. A- or that's what I got to questioning. I was like, did yeah. I somehow activate this or trigger this? Because I'd surrendered to the idea that I was going to be spending a year or two in, in prison and that there was nothing I could do about it. Maybe less than a year you know, with good behavior or whatever. Um, but, but, and I thought that's going to suck. But I, I thought I'll just start my life over then afterwards. And I realized I needed to change my life. And I had started thinking about, even before I went to court, I started thinking about, how I wanted to live my life afterwards and how I wanted to be a different person. And I started thinking about, you know, the, the changes I was going to make and the sense of possibility. And I began to get a little bit more happy about that. Like, yeah, it's going to suck going to, to jail for a while, but I'll, I'll get through that. I'll recover from it eventually and I'll live my life better afterwards. Mm. So it's in a way I saw realities almost telling me, all right, you don't have to go to jail now since you got the lesson. Yeah. Like we wanted you to get the lesson but now you don't need to do the time because it would be, there'd be no point. And I was like, yeah, 
sort of true. And since then, how many run-ins with the law? None. <laughs> well, <laughs> speeding tickets, that's it. Yeah. Everybody's got a few of those, except my wife, which she likes to remind me whenever I get one. <laughs> so. I've, only got, I've only gotten a few, but yeah, that, but that's it. Yeah, nothing like your previous life. Not even like a parking ticket, I don't think otherwise. So Amazing. Well, proof again, as if we needed it, that it is possible for one to change one's life in a significant way. Whether it was that transformation that you made from that teenage, you know, troublemaker who got in trouble with the law to, you know, a business person that was on the the brink of, you know, bankruptcy. Maybe you did declare, you know, and, and you had that shift and then you and then you did declare and, and to this point today where it seems like you're on a pretty level track where you've organized your life in a way that it's working, that it appears to me that you live with integrity. You know, now that your words and your actions are congruent, you are what you appear to be, you know? Um, so anyway, it seems, um, to me, I think, I, I think again, inspiring is probably the word where I do think there are people in this industry of personal growth and, and, and development coaching and teaching others that don't necessarily walk their talk where I, that's one thing that I'm interested in and impressed by you where, you know, the things that you share are things that you've lived you know, it's not theory, it's stuff that you've, you've practiced, you've seen in your own life, um, which really leads to the next, to, to my final question, aside from just a couple questions about the, cre- about the creative process, it's this about open relationships that I understand, again, from things on your blog post that you and Rochelle, that you have an open marriage. Yeah. And this is obviously atypical of the way, you know, our American society tends to think of monogamy, which Esther Perel opened my eyes to the fact that even the term monogamy has changed in use where before we'd think monogamy was one partner for a lifetime. And now we think if we have serial relationships that that's monogamy. So for people who think they have a handle on, you know, what things mean in the first place, you know, I invite them to maybe reconsider. But I suppose the question here for you is, will you talk a little bit about what it means to be in an open relationship. And here I'm going to do the thing I've done a couple of times, which is I'll stack questions. <laughs> Feel free to answer any of them or any other question. But what does that mean? What's it like? Why do you do it? And what would you say to others who are thinking about it? Uh, well, I, I got started on this path probably around 2009 when I met some other people who are into open relationships. And I thought it seemed fascinating. I was like, how do you do that? Does that actually work? What's possible? And when I met them in person and hung out with them, I realized, wow, that seems totally normal to them. And I, once again, it was that, that difference between the outsider pers- perspective looking in and the insider perspective. And I thought, huh, I wonder if that's something I could experience. And so um, I, I was in a relationship. I was in my first marriage at the time, and we'd been married for a while, but the marriage wasn't quite really working. <laughs> um, and so we, we, had, we, we had talked about breaking up a number of times before, and we decided to try doing this open relationships experiment to see if that was better. And it was also a way to just experience, like when you're in a marriage for so long, we'd been together like um, I think about 15 years uh, and married for 11 years. Like what is it like if you open up the relationship and start connecting with other people? Yeah, and you have kids from that first marriage. Is that right? Yes, Absolutely two teenagers, <laughs> myself. So um, it's, 
you know, the, it was an exploration, but it was also kind of a last ditch effort to save our marriage, which I think wasn't the best way to explore open relationships. But and eventually um, later that year, we decided to separate and, and, uh, and get a divorce, which we eventually uh, got a divorce as well. And then um, when I was in kind of my open relationship, ex, you know, uh, exploration period, that's when I met Rochelle and she had already, already previously had some experience with an open relationship and she wanted to explore that too. So we thought, okay, we'll explore this, you know, from the beginning. And it was, um, you know, the idea was we just wanted to have a different experience of relationships. We both had monogamous relationships before. She'd been engaged before, but not married before. And she eventually broke off her engagement. So she had experience with long-term relationships. And, and I had one really big <laughs> long-term relationship with kids as well. And so we, we thought, like, let's, let's explore this and see what it's like together. And we actually really liked it. It was, um, we, you know, we had other friends who'd, who'd been in that kind of space. And, we, you know, what it, what it meant to us was um, generally there's two different types of, of, of people who um, explore open relationships. For some, it's purely about the physical side. It's about having sex with other partners on the side. And oftentimes those people will not allow themselves to fall in love with anyone else, or at least that's what they tell themselves. They, so they might have one primary partner, but they'll, they'll have other uh, sex partners on the side. And the other group, which is where Rochelle and I land, is the people who are willing to have emotional connections with other people and explore, and especially to explore the gray area between friend and lover. And, and no, noticing that things can be very fluid there in terms of re relationships, that a friend can become a lover, can go back to a friend, that's how we saw, saw things playing out in our, um, in our friends' lives who were living this kind, of, this kind of lifestyle. And we thought, wow, that's you know, fascinating to explore that way. And so we, you know, we've been exploring that way for, for many years now. And while it's not something we're super active in, it's just something we're open to. When, when a connection experience comes to us, um, then we've, we allow ourselves to flow in that direction. What challenges does it create if any, I realize that's a leading question, but what challenges have you experienced related to, to having an open relationship? You know, the main challenge I just say is the drama. Uh, where, where I live in Las Vegas, it's not a big deal, really. <laughs> um, it, Las Vegas is a pretty liberal city, so it's, it's just not a problem. And I have so many friends in this space that are in open relationships, or they're at least open to the idea that to me, it's, it, it's become normalized. Like in my social circle, it's just really not that big a deal. Uh, so for some people, I think the common problem is just social rejection for even wanting to go that direction. Mm -hmm. But what many people don't realize is that there's a lot of social acceptance then from people who are into that space. Yeah. What I found when I came out about this public, publicly many years ago is that other friends of mine told me, oh, I've been in an open relationship for years. And I was like, what? Really? I didn't know that. Wow. Why didn't you tell me? And they would say, well, I didn't know you'd be cool about it. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. So <laughs> if, if people think you might be judgmental about it, they won't open up and tell you. But as soon as you reveal like you're into that space or you're at least curious about it, then it's like people come out of the woodwork yeah. <laughs> and they say, oh, I'm in the space, I'm in the space. And so people came and gave me lots of advice and you know, sh sharing and things like that. And even some partners emerged because of that. I hate when that happens. All this unsolicited advice just come in my way. No. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> On any was, given topic, right? people, people told me what books to read and you know, what other um, experts to you know, consider learning from and so on. Uh, it, was, 
it was actually a pretty easy flowing ex exploration. We've been very good in, in avoiding drama. And one of the things that really helped in the beginning was to only connect with, with par other partners who also had chosen open relationships, who, who already had experience on that path. So we really played it safe in the beginning. One thing I found that doesn't work is trying to convince somebody that this is the right path for them. So I never do that. I, no. I, only, I only would explore this kind of thing with somebody else who's chosen it. It's, uh, it's, it's not the right path for everybody. Um, it's, it's been a great path for us, though. What I've, what I've found is if I connect with, with a, another partner on the side and then connect with Rochelle again, it, I, I appreciate her more because I get to see the contrast of how she's different from another woman. Yeah. And, and it helps me appreciate some of her subtler qualities that I would otherwise take for granted. I would just get used to them and they would recede into the background. And instead, it actually makes me feel more in love with her because I get to see like, wow, there's all this freedom to explore with other people. And the irony is like having that freedom to explore makes me not want to express it as much. Yeah. Like I, much of the time, I, it's not like a need or desire to go out and connect with other partners. Uh, Rochelle and I are like, we're so into each other. We're so compatible with each other that most of the time, if we're going to do something open wise, it's a threesome with another woman. It's like, mm -hmm. we want to have that experience of sharing um, a connection with another person together. It's not like we need to go off and have our own side partners, but everybody explores this path differently. Some people really do get into exploring with other, other side partners, having long-term relationships. And it's just about like um, caring for other people, like yeah. making, making each other, like even if it's a sexual experience, making each other feel good, connecting and not putting um, walls and barriers to where the connection wants to go seeing if there's an invitation there. Like if two people are willing or three people are willing or whatever, you want to go a certain path, like follow your heart and see where that leads. And I generally, I find it leads somewhere pretty be beautiful. Yeah. Now, part of what, part of what's interesting to me about this part of our conversation is first of all, it's, it's an experience that many people either don't have or don't talk about. So the fact that you do both, you know, I think is intriguing um, kind of like you said, where you have friends even that were, you know, practicing open relationships, but they weren't, they didn't come out about it. You know, they weren't public about it in any way. And I think there's something very powerful about when we really own, you know, who we are, what we want, you know, how we're going to live our lives and not feel that we've got to conceal that or limit ourselves in a certain way. And I imagine, you know, like anything, there's people who approve, people who disapprove, you know, there's judgment or support, you know, that that you'll find, but that's true of anything from diet to field of study to career, you know, to whatever. So that is again, to kind of sum up maybe both on this topic and everything that we've talked about. Um, one thing I really do, um, I'm curious about and I admire in, in your work is just the free ranging, you know, exploration of your interests, your passions, your curiosities, your willingness to to go deep in whatever they are and then to share what your findings are that in some way you I think I see you as an explorer you know of the human experience and then you're coming back and reporting <laughs> what's it what's it like what can we expect you know that's pretty much how I see myself as well is um, exploring and sharing yeah that that's beautiful what do you think is useful for somebody who's listening maybe somebody who's listened to this long thinking, you know, I like Steve. I like what he's about. Um, I'm interested to learn something he might share with me that would help me on my own journey of taking what I know or what I've lived, putting it between the covers of a book and sharing it with other people. 
What do you think is useful for them to hear at this point? Um, I think one thing that helps me a lot with the creative process is purity of intention. Mm. When I, when I struggled so much with my computer games business, my intentions were things like create a hit game, you know, see my game on the store shelves. It was based on pride, this feeling Mm. like I want to be proud of my accomplishments. And that created the opposite effect. (laughs) Uh, Nobody cared about that result. It wasn't a great thing for other people. It was just something good for me. That's an uncomfortable thing, I think, for a lot of people to learn is that nobody gives a shit about you, (laughs) right? Yeah, like nobody cared about my goals. And in fact, people who pretended to care about my goals, they were more interested in using me for how it would help them achieve their goals. And it was very misaligned, that way of working. And that's what kind of caused me to do business with the people who are not aligned with what I want to achieve and just, you know, sinking down into a pit of death, (laughs) but pit of debt, really. Um, And you know, what I've, what really got things rolling in terms of results, um, especially getting things actually published that I felt really good about was the purity of the intention. And Mm -hmm. the intention was in a way it was timeless. It was about adding something interesting to the substance of the universe, creating something that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. It was not just about the present moment of that, but like when I write, when I wrote my book, I was actually thinking, what could I write that would still matter in a hundred years? Like that was part of my intention. Like I want my book to still be read in a hundred years. And it's not because it's an ego thing. It's because I want to write, I want to find something that's timeless, something that will actually matter to people a hundred years from now. Mm-hmm. I want to get at nuggets of real truth and wisdom in there. Like, what are they? <laughs> um, I want to come up with an interesting answer. And, I, and when I have this purity of intention, I, I've noticed that it also aligns with me having to do my best. And if a, if a goal or intention, if I can achieve it without having to do my best, I know it's not a good goal. I know it's mm-hmm. not a great intention. But when I think, what is a goal that's, um, you know, another question I ask a lot lately is, what is a goal that's uniquely me? What's a goal that only I would set, that only I could accomplish in a certain way? And it's because it fits me very uniquely. Like creating Conscious Growth Club is a good example. Creating it in the way I'm creating it, it's like it's such a perfect match for my skill set, my background in technology combined with personal growth. There's certain things I can do there much more easily and at lower cost than anybody else can that I know of. Um, because of the combination of the, the odd combination of skills and past experiences I have, past experiences with community management, um, doing coaching, being comfortable with speaking, off the cuff even, uh, creating lots of content for, for people, in, helping people, encouraging people, being close to my community as well. Like so many things just came together there where I realized I could actually do this in a way that would provide some unique value that if I don't do it personally, it may never get done you know, like not in this way. Like this is the time, this is the place to do it. I have to be the one to do this. And so adding that personal aspect to creative goals, I think is really powerful. Um, and I, I've been doing that with courses as well. As I, as I create courses, I'm trying to f- find the topics where I can make that kind of unique contribution, where there's some, some interesting piece to the puzzle I can add that hasn't been said before. And that's tricky because it requires exploring a lot <laughs> and, and, and then putting the pieces together with all these explorations and asking yourself, how has my exploration been unique? What, what dots can I connect from different fields even that sum up to something different that we haven't seen before? Yeah, that's a great, a great question. And, and as you asked that, 
And I think that can be useful. I also, as I imagine myself asking that question, I can imagine it also being somewhat stressful. Like it can feel like a burden. Um, and I think of, I don't remember who said this, but this idea, somebody said, um, don't try to be original, just try to be good. You know, this kind of idea of, of doing our best, you know, which I love what you said about that. If, if a goal doesn't require me to do my best, it's probably not a good goal for me. I think, I think that's really cool. And then, and then this other idea about, um, again, I don't remember who said this, but everything's been said before, but not by me, <laughs> you know? So in some way there can be this liberation in what you're saying. I love that. What can I create that's still relevant in a hundred years? You know, what can I create that will matter to other people, will serve other people and not just serve my own ambition, right? That's a beautiful, empowering question. And then the same thing about what's uniquely me. Like, I think that's, I think that's really cool. So for people listening, you know, I hope that some of these perspectives add a dimension to your own creative pursuits for whatever project you're in or whatever projects you might take on, you know, going forward and find a way to have fun with it, find a way to play, to create, to share um, and not feel like, you know, this has to turn out a certain way or it's got to whatever, check certain boxes. I mean, like this was one thing I was shocked to learn. Did you know this, Steve, that certain people will post things online, whatever, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. And if it doesn't receive a certain number of likes or comments in a certain period, they'll actually take it down. Really? I didn't because, know. Yeah, I didn't know that either, that that it's better in some people's eyes to to have comments, like to have nothing posted than to have things posted that don't have high engagement or high viewership. It's like, it looks bad for them socially or something. I was like, this world we've created for ourselves is, is pretty remarkable. Okay. So let me ask this. In your opinion, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? A great sentence for me, a great sentence is actually one that makes me cry, at least in context. Um, it's that I feel some emotional resonance with it. Um, another one for a great sentence is one that I'm afraid to publish. <laughs> one that where I hesitate to click the publish button, you know, to put, to put that out there. How often does that happen? I don't know if I should say that. I mean, that, that could happen like if I'm posting something on social media or, you know, something yeah. a little controversial. Um, sure, it can happen quite often. Well, <laughs> uh, it depends. That's finding your edge. Right. Yeah. Find, finding your place of edginess. Um, but also like the emotional aspect, you know, the, like the one where it makes me cry a bit is because it's landing as something really profound to me. It means yeah. it's, it's not just a head based thought. It's a heart based thought as well. Yeah. And the one where I'm afraid to publish, it's also pulling me in my heart from a, from a different angle. Like, uh, you know, the word courage, which we think of as bravery it, it comes from the Latin core, C-O-R, which means the core of your being or the, or the heart, the, the center of who you are. So there's a couple of different angles of thinking about courage. One is that you're centered in your heart, and another is the sense of valor and bravery. Mm. And, and so um, I, I define courage often as the combination of love and power. It's, it's both. It's like love in action, or it's empowering our love is, is another way to look at it. Mm. Um, and so when we're, when we're in that heart-aligned space, and we write from there, it, it adds, you know, an extra spark to uh, the meaning behind the words. Yeah. I, I like that perspective. What's the best money you've ever spent as a writer? Hmm. Best money. You know, um, 
honestly, just having a really good uh, computer, <laughs> one, that, yeah. one that feels good to me to write on, like just on the tools themselves. Like I love, you know, I have the, the latest uh, MacBook Pro. I love using that as, as just a, a writing tool. Yeah. Um, you know, I could talk about books and seminars and things like that, but my experience of writing is typing, is, is touching the keys. And so yeah. having, a, having a machine to write with that really resonates with me is good. For uh, let me ask let me let me answer another version of that question, which is like for course creation, for creating bigger works like a uh-huh. book or project. Uh-huh. I like simple tools like um, index cards, uh, pen, paper. I spend a lot of time, especially lately, working offline. I get away from my desk, away from my computer, um, and and I just have like a little table in the back of my office where I I work and uh, just with a you know a chair by itself and and stay away from the tech. And just work in the space of ideas. Yeah. And, and with the simplest of tools. Going analog. Old school. Yeah. Totally analog. But just where I can be with my thoughts because technology can be very distracting. Uh, you know, everything's just a click away. We get, get addicted to doing things online, web surfing, email, and so on. And when you don't have those available and they're not right in your physical space, it lets you really think deeply about a problem. It lets you really get into it mentally. Um, and that's that's what I really love about the creative process too is that chance to apply some intellectual rigor to a problem mm-hmm. that I don't know how to solve answers yeah. I don't know yet because yeah. what excites me about that is is not only is it a growth experience for me to come up with fresh insights that I could potentially use to create breakthroughs in different areas of my life, but also that I get to share them with other people and it creates ripples in the world and it's it's that, it's that potential um, for a huge reward, the fact that if I figure out some problem or some challenge or some perspective, it's not just about me. I'm solving this problem for humanity. Yeah. I often think of it as, as a mathematical problem or an architectural problem. You know, say like, uh, you know, it's recently been in the news about the, the Notre Dame Cathedral, you know, on right. fire. Yep. And, you know, lots of people donating money to, uh, to restore it. But think about what it took to build that cathedral, all the principles of mathematics and architecture that had to be created, not to mention all the art inside. Yeah. Um, and I, I've been there a couple of times. It's just, it's just beautiful inside. And, and just you know, thinking of what was necessary to build that and, the, and that those are things that have been gifted to humanity. Yeah. Is that the, the tools to create something like that and that that's the result. You know, that's one example of, of what we can do with certain tools and certain principles. And I, I, I think deeply about that. And I think if you, we can really get at the heart of those tools and principles, that they all create ripples in ways we don't even imagine. Yeah. You, know, you, you think like people coming up with certain you know, rules like the Pythagorean theorem, that they knew how that was going to be applied. <laughs> you know, the ripples through hundreds of years, you know, passing when those, when, the, when those ideas came about, I don't, I don't think it was, people were aware of how many ripples those, those would create. I don't think that was necessarily the mindset, but what if we do take that mindset into our creative work today? Yeah. You know, like imagine what you're doing for the world and all the ripples that one little insight can create one little piece of wisdom can create. Yeah. And that's what provides the real motivational fuel to put in hours and hours and hours of effort just to come up with one good, interesting idea. I I love that because I think that reframe really can be the difference between experiencing our work as toil, you know, struggle, stress versus freedom, you know, contribution, meaning, meaningful, this kind of thing. So that's, that's wonderful. One thing that I want to 
share before we wrap up here is um, is a way of saying thank you to you for being so generous with your time and sharing of your experience and your knowledge. Um, I've I've gone on Kiva.org and I've made a hundred dollar micro loan to a female entrepreneur in India named Miyu. She's a 24-year-old married woman who lives in Jaipur. She has a tailoring business of her own that she will use this loan to purchase more cloth, needles, and to expand her business, improve the quality of life for herself, for her family, and for people in her community. So I just wanted to do that as some small way of expressing my gratitude to you. Beautiful. Thank you. And then um, if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, obviously they can Google, they can... Um, go on Amazon. Um, but what would you have them do if they, and I know we already talked about the conscious growth club earlier. Um, but how would, so how do you answer that question? If people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Um, my website is the best place to start. So it's just stevepavlina.com. And, uh, there's, you know, if you go to the archives page there, you'll see tons of articles. Um, you can read the latest blog posts. Uh, there's podcasts, there's videos, there's tons and tons of free content. So if you're not familiar with my work, I would just start with the free content and, you know, test it, try the ideas, um, experiment with it, explore. There's a lot of ideas that are based in reality. They're they're not just like um, high level spiritual ideas. They're actual things that get results for people, for myself and for others. So just, um, you know, go through the archives and whatever article title draws your attention, just trust your intuition and, you know, spend some time just reading and just uh, soaking up the ideas that are there. Awesome. And you've even recently started posting fairly regularly on Instagram. Yeah. I I just have just over 2000 followers there now. I think it was 2200 something right now. So I I just started a little while ago with that. Um, It's not something I'm super into, but I had a lot of friends on the site who were encouraging me to like give it a try. So I thought, okay, I'll post some photos here and there are some videos. Yeah. So people can check that out as well if they're interested. Awesome. Okay, might seem anticlimactic, but we are done. Great. (laughs) Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.